Yes, sir. Yes. I was. I was on my way home, though. I was. I was on my way home, and then I somehow realized it was here. Yeah. Just I think if time. I hadn't had so many afternoon meetings, then I would have thought about it more. But I guess that combined with the hard habit to break—it's been two years of this now. So anyway, is a. Dave there, I think I see him in the corner. I'm here, we're ready to get started. Do we need to uh, start our video? I'm here, you said we you Yeah, you don't need to use your video. Okay, you all right, turn good. Turn your cameras off. Okay. All right, yeah, Nick, if you wanna get going, yeah. we're ready. edition of the Multimodal Transportation Commission's meeting. Um, we are going to start with the study session because it's it's uh, five o'clock and sorry I'm dealing with pop-ups all over the place here. But Dave, I, I think I'll just turn it over to you at this point. I don't think we need to take attendance at this rate, um, but if you or Christina can provide the preamble to any Zoom related concerns. Yep, we'll do that. Thanks. Uh... Thank you, Nick, and good evening, everyone. A few housekeeping items for this hybrid meeting. The meeting is being recorded and broadcast on the city's YouTube channel and cable channel 25. Please remember to mute yourself during the meeting when you are not speaking. The chat function for this public meeting is disabled. All chats will go uh, directly to staff. Unless you are participating during the meeting, please turn your video off. This allows the active meeting participants to be seen on screen. You will still be able to hear the meeting and when you are participating, please turn your video on. If you have any trouble, you can send us a chat. Um, the city re reserves the right to mute people or turn individual individual the the notes on the hybrid meeting, and I'll have uh, Christina do the roll call. Okay. Damon Tesca. I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. Aaron, Aaron Payton. Pat Collette. Here. Charlie Bryant. Here. Nick Kuzmiak. Here. Douglas Reddy. And Althea Schnacki. Here. All right. Well, um, for tonight's study session, um, up here. Um, we we're going to have a conversation on um, bike safety and bike education. And I'm just one sec here. Um, so on the agenda, um, we've I've uh, included a little bit of information on our uh, scorecards or our past uh, scorecards or, or analysis. 
um, for the the bicycle friendly community um, designation is one that, one that uh, occurs, occurs every four years. years. You can apply every four years. And so they give you a, a report card um, to help measure progress. And so the, the ratings um, go from gold, uh, well, actually, I think from platinum to gold to silver to bronze. Um, and we've, the uh, city of Lawrence has been a bronze level um, since 2004. Um, I know when we were talking about this at uh, last month's meeting, that was one of the things that um, the MMTC was asking about what would it take to maybe get to the silver level. So on the agenda, of, um, there's some links there. And so the, the 2020 um, report card, if you were to open that um, link, it would give you um, what our current standing is uh, in relation to the average silver community. Um, so we, we don't get any other information um, other than this report card. Um, so I, I don't know exactly how many of the criteria have to meet, you know, what threshold, but um, overall it kind of, this scorecard kind of attempts to, to gauge our, um, where we're at uh, with other communities. Um, so we've attached that information. Um, we've also applied for the Peoples for Bikes uh, rating system um, in the past and we've attached the last scorecard, the last couple of scorecards for that application um, to the memo. And um, also there's a link to the Lawrence bike plan and um, some of the educational videos that we, uh, the MPO uh, put together a couple of years ago in the past uh, around bicycle education. So there's a little background information um, on what kind of where we're at and things that we've done. I also, um, Stephen Mason's here with Parks and Rec who um, is uh, our certified bike instructor and, and, and teaches parks, uh, courses through Parks and Rec. <coughs> Um, and I'll uh, also note that um, we've, uh, through our Safe Routes to School um, plan, um, there's education that's being done um, in, in the elementary schools around uh, bicycle education and safety as well. So um, with that, I'll just, I guess, turn it over and have an open discussion, I guess, with the commission to see um, what more information you want to know or what other maybe direction you want to head with given the history of where we're at with our rating and and see if we want to identify ways to make progress. Um, Jessica Mornger's online. She um, still staffs the MPO's Bicycle Advisory Committee. So they meet every so often. Um, so if there's any, they do a lot of, I think they do some advocacy work maybe still. So if there's any questions around that or what they're doing, um, Jessica's online. Hey, Kuzmi, I'm MTC chair. So I feel like there's a lot of info to go over here. Um, it, you know, there are two separate ratings here. Uh, you have the Bicycle Friendly Communities Campaign, BFC, and then places for bikes as well. Um, I guess, would it be better to separate the discussion into each of the different um, ranking systems just to make sure that we're talking about the relevant um, scoring and metrics for those? Or do we want to just just combine it all and have general 
questions. And I guess this is a question for either Jessica or for others on the commission. What would be more productive? Well, I would, I guess, offer to maybe we go through this last scorecard from the bicycle friendly community. Okay. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, are you going to be able to share the screen? Or I don't know how it works now that we're hybrid. So I am not able to write it at the moment. Um, Christina, can you share that? I mean, I can see it on my screen. I'm assuming that other commissioners are able to see it in front of them. So I guess it's more for the public who's, who's going to yeah. be watching this later. Let's see if I can get in there. Oh, God. Excuse me, I can MTC chair. Uh, while Christina is getting that up, I have sort of a general question here. Um, the, geez, what are these guys called again? Sorry, I just lost my screen here. All right, the bicycle friendly community card it looks like in 2012, the city received an actual like feedback memo and everything after that was just a report card. So I was particularly interested in the suggestions that came in on the feedback memo. But for those of you who have been here for a while, is that rather unusual to actually get a feedback memo? Is it only for first time applicants or do they do it yeah, every Jessica Mortinger, transportation planning manager, they changed the format of the feedback they give you. So they no longer now give you that text feedback. You don't get it. They do those report cards. And I think it's because it's an easier data-driven formatting process for them probably um, in terms of being able to compare you to their, what they consider the next criteria level um, on some of your metrics as they are grading and reviewing more communities. Thanks. Um, that is interesting. I, I have a feeling it's a lot lower effort on their part to do that and kind of easier to compare apples to apples as well. But on the other hand, it means that there aren't like, like ex explicit suggestions to follow, which is sort of unfortunate, but we can also look back just 10 years in the past to see what the feedback was. Um, and I guess one of the things I'm hoping to accomplish th this hour is to have sort of a conversation on what the suggestions were and what progress has been made in the past 10 years, because I would bet a decent amount has been made. So it'd be good to kind of see from staff's point of view where we stand, um, what you thought of the feedback, I guess, and where you think we could go next. So um, is there is anybody else interested in going that far back? I know it's 2012, but some of the feedback I saw, it kind of still remains the same today. Or do we want to go straight to the report card? Uh, Nick, this is Charlie. I was, I'm more interested in just going into the report cards. Okay. I don't have any objections. So yeah, we can start with that then. So I guess that would be the 2021, right? Or yeah. This, so what I was looking at was just making the comparison with the average silver, because if our next step would be to aspire to become silver, then my thought was, you know, where are we? far away from the average of a silver designation. <clears throat> and there's really just a handful of things where we're pretty far off. The high-speed roads with bike facilities, average silver is 35%. We're only at five. 
we've been at five since the designation in 2016. So it appears that we're making no progress on, on that. Uh, for the total bike network mileage to total road network mileage, we're at 17% and the average for a silver community is 48. We've actually fallen backwards on this. We were 24% in 2016. Now we're down to 17%. Those to me stood out as probably the two biggest contrasts. Then the other uh, couple that seem different quite a bit, but maybe not as significant or the share of the transportation budget spent on bicycling. Um, an average silver community is 11% and we're at 6%, which is no different than our percentage back in 2016. At that point, um, the average silver was 14%. Clearly we're spending um, as a share of our transportation budget, half of what a typical silver community would spend. And then ridership, uh, was another area that seemed pretty different. We have uh, less than 1% of our commuters who use bikes. That's 0.95%. Whereas the silver communities on average are 2.7%, uh, almost three times what we're doing. And then the ridership for 2016, we were at 1.3%. So we've actually gone down. Uh, so I, to me, those were the key differences between us and silver communities. So I'd wonder, you know, how could we <coughs> focus our efforts on trying to improve on the key outcome around ridership? And then how could we maybe um, understand better what's meant by high-speed roads with bike facilities and the bike network mileage? as a share of the total road network mileage. Those seem to be the ones that would make sense for us to um, spend time on. I, I don't think it's our place to be looking at the share of the transportation budget on bicycling, although others might advocate for that with the city commission. Um, I suppose we could always point it out to them, but I would like to know more about what's meant by high speed road with a bike facility. Because I know we've been very specific about trying to not put bike lanes on high-speed roads. Um, are we undermining our opportunity to become a silver bike-friendly community if we do that? Or like, does anybody know what that means to have a bike facility on a high-speed road? Excuse me, I am MTC chair. Obviously, I'm not the best poised to do this because I'm sure the city has their own definition, but according to the 2012 report card here, um, one of the feedback items was to continue to expand the bike network and increase network connectivity through the use of bike lanes, blah, 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 blah. Since arterial and collector roads are the backbone of every transportation network, it is essential to increase the number of wide shoulders or bike lanes along these roads. Now it doesn't say off, off street separated bike lanes. It just says bike lanes or wide shoulders, which as as you just noted, is not exactly the direction that we're going with high-speed arterials. So it's possible that in 2012, the direction was a little bit different from the national level, but I think the sort of the basis is still the same, that if we're, if we're calling arterials and collectors the backbone of the transportation network, 
but they're mostly used for cars, then by not having bike facilities on major roads, then they're going to be pretty left out of the overall network. And I guess this is a question I have for staff in, in terms of like, and then what we do on the micro scale, which is look at individual projects and rankings and prioritizations to try to determine which projects are kind of the most deserving of funding. But I'm, I'm struggling to recall, I guess, why projects like a shared use path on 6th or on 23rd Street don't get prioritized over, say, Lawrence Loop. Because um, it looks like if we were to reprioritize those projects, then we would bump up significantly in these um, metrics. So I'm not saying it's a good or bad thing. I'm just saying that may be where we're, we could be uh, uh, falling short there. Yeah, well, the Lawrence Loop is kind of on the priority network, so I think it gets scored a little higher being on the priority network. But certainly, I think as we've done road reconstruction projects, we've added bike facilities. We're getting ready to start East 23rd Street. We're putting shared use pass on that. We're going to be doing that on Wakarusa next year. So um, I'm kind of look. I'm looking right now to find the uh, to kind of look at the question there. What's a high speed facility? And that may help us. So Jessica Mortinger, Transportation Planning Manager, I went back to look at the application from 2020, and it looks like they ask you to break your categories into three different categories for straight posted speed limits under 25 miles an hour, 25 to 35, equal to uh, uh, equal to 35 or greater than 35. Um, and so about of about 500. Uh, miles that we put in there, about 58 of those are over 35, and I would assume that's what they consider high speed because they don't ask you for any other designation. Okay. This is this is Pat Collette. Um, so I guess in terms of bike facilities, does it also include those shared use paths along uh, the high speed high speed roads or over 35? Do you know, Jessica, whether that? in that application, whether um, not just bike lanes or wide shoulders would be included, but also shared use paths. Because I think that's where, you know, I mean, our discussions in the last year at least have been around that, you know, as far as uh, having shared use paths along roads that have, have the higher speeds. So I guess that's a question whether... Um. So it appears on their, and this is, on, it appears on their application, then then for each of those three categories, they ask you how many bicycle boulevards, how many shared lane markings, how many wide paved shoulders, how many bicycle lanes, how many buffered bicycle lanes, how many protected bicycle lanes, and raised cycle tracks are for each type. And there is no category, it doesn't look like, for a shared use path. So that may be a case where that is underrepresented because it's they're not asking about shared use path as a facility on high speed roadways. Mm -hmm. wow. It's not an entry point to their metrics. <clears throat> that would probably explain the 5%. Yes, moving. because otherwise we're probably at a higher percent, but their form doesn't appear to ask for that. So it's probably likely based on this using that to calculate our what they say is 5%. Interesting. Okay. Um, what else? So, oh, sorry, Nick Kuzmiak, MMTC chair. Um, 
Charlie, you also asked about that second metric, the total on and off-road bicycle network mileage to total road mm -hmm. mileage. So if our percentage went down, but we have been constructing more bike paths and shared use paths, Jessica, do you think this is another case of where shared use paths maybe just aren't counted correctly, or have we been building a ton of car roads? And let me go see what I can find real quick. Let me look at it. <laughs> no, you're fine. It's like I there's just, two sides of that equation, right? Like you're are we fine. tons of car roads, maybe. <laughs> It depends how they ask the question. Their form is very formulaic. Usually it has an entry for the one thing they're writing and there's no other interpretation of what the question is. You can enter a number in the field they have. That's it for that category. So we... Uh, that sort of brings I up have... a general point that I think would be good to address at some point, And that is, I guess in blunt terms, how much do we care about the report card? I mean, is it even really a representative measurement of how Lawrence is doing on bike infrastructure. Because I'm kind of thinking of this as similar to stuff like LEED or USD Organic, where it's well-intentioned, but the way that it's actually laid out is like, eh, I mean, is it really the best way to measure your success in certain sustainability metrics? I don't know. Um, I mean, it's better than nothing because at least it's quantifiable. But are we quantifying the right, are, are, are they quantifying the right things? And it looks like in our case, maybe not. Um, I mean, if if you were to count share use paths as bike facilities, which they are, then yeah, our percentage would look pretty good actually. <laughs> but just because we call them something different means that we're we're missing out on a good report card somehow. Or or rather, it's very likely that uh, that's the case. So, so I think um, my this sorry, Nick, didn't mean to cut you off. I'm all done. You're up. I was going to suggest one way to use the data in front of us is um, kind of regardless of how the shake, you know, how this shakes out with their process. What we do know is, as a reference, these silver designated communities have a pretty significantly higher percentage of their high-speed roads that have bike facilities. We might use that as a gauge of whether we believe that our high-speed roadways have adequate bike facilities. If it looks like 35% or 47% of those communities back in 2016 had bike facilities, maybe for our own purposes, we can define bike facilities how we think is appropriate, including shared use paths, and ask the same question. Do we even hit a third of our high-speed roads with bike facilities, for example? And is there a target we might want to set? I think, you know. Well, and is the appropriate analysis, the level of comfort analysis that we've done in the bikeway plan? I mean, because that addresses if what facility type does it meet the expectation for comfort for that street? And you could look at, we could pull out from that level of comfort analysis, which we already have, just look at that for roadways that are posted speed over 35 and be able to tell you that pretty easily, I think within a reasonable metric just by querying that model we built. Um, now that I guess we've at least started to, um, what's the word, kick the tires on this thing, I wonder if it would be worth it, you know, mostly for staff time because it will take staff time to, I guess, dig into sort of why these are what they are. And Jessica, like you were saying, like maybe offer a counter metric to say like, okay, this is what you're trying to get out of this metric, right? Like has to be roads with bike facilities. Based on what your form says, here's where we are, we're at 5%, right? Based on what the reality is, here's where Lawrence is actually at. 
I, I mean, I, I guess it'd be helpful for us to see if like, man, we're doing terribly at bikes or we're actually doing pretty good, which just aren't calling it the right thing. Um, I don't know if that's the kind of good PR that, that we want to share with the with the wider community or not, or if that would go unnoticed or I, I don't know. Any other thoughts from the commission on that? Uh, this is Pat Collette. I, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, Nick, but just in thinking about the use of, of these and, you know, that we have, you know, a plan to address performance measures um, in 2022 and that, you know, looking at these measures in addition to the other ones that we that we have in place or that we're that we're looking at for our, for our um, um, both bike and ped um, performance measures that, that that might be a use of of these and like like Charlie said use perhaps using our definitions of what we consider bike facilities on high speed roads for instance as as one of those but that you know making sure that that these are these are included so that they're at least we're we're paying attention to them as as we go year to year and that you know when it comes around to the next uh, to the next application. I mean, the next application, I don't know, Jessica, was that the, the one that's going to be for 2024? Or I, I don't remember if that was the one I looked at. Yeah, that, usually it's for four years. So I assume 2024. Yeah. But the application that you're looking at, was that used in 2020 or? Yeah, I have uh, both the ones pulled up from 2016 and 2020. Yeah, okay. I was, so the questions are different. So I'm not even sure that's what I was trying to figure out how they actually calculated what they said for high speed roadways in 2016, because I can't find where they even asked the questions that way. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, at least if we're paying attention to these year to year and that, you know, when it gets to application time, you know, we may or may not improve according to their definitions, but at least we've paid attention to those categories and how we interpret those for our community. I'm intrigued by the looking at the level of comfort data. Um, Jessica, if you're, is, is that handy for you to look at right now or would you need time to bring something yep. back to us? I mean, we can pull it up right now. Let me get on the website, should be there. So with high speed roads, yeah. with bike facilities, is your assumption that if the bike facility is, exists then the level of comfort would score at a certain level? Yeah, that if there was a shared use path or a comfortable bike facility, that the bike, the level of comfort on bike classification type um, would be as it is. And let me, give me, Keep talking and give me a second. So what I'm thinking is if we could say, you know, we want to look at high speed roads. So that would be 35 and above. And how many of those high speed roads have a level of comfort of three? Um, or two or one, or maybe just look at all the categories and say, right. how, how good are, how do we feel about the distribution of level of comfort um, along these high speed roads? And, and looking at the percentages. Oh, sorry. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, thank you, MMTC Chair. Pat, I was going to follow up on um, what you were saying about these performance measures. And I don't know if I was fully following along, but it sounded like, I don't know, reading between the lines, like it would be good to track the metrics that the BFC, geez, what's that? 
BFC bicycle friendly community that they track maybe alongside our metrics to show that we're still making progress, just maybe not on theirs. And I wonder if that's the kind of thing that could go into that transportation 2050 or something. Um, or Jessica, if that's already sort of rolled into the bikeway plan. Well, let me just a second. I'm trying to find the performance measure update we just did for the bikeway plan. Um, Sorry, your cue is growing by the second here. <laughs> you're like working on demand. Um, I'm trying to find the data because we put together some sums of the changes in level of comfort. And I think that was from the bikeway plan. So I'm trying to get to that so I can pull it up for you. Um, but I think there's opportunity also while I look for this to um, identify uh, in transportation 2050 um, from the feedback we've gotten and where we stand, where we feel we stand based on um, our 46, just a second, okay. Um, where we stand to see where we're at in terms of where we need to go in terms of some of that. Like if we keep making progress on these prioritizations like the priority network, which is a, a large part of our high speed network, but also parts of an off road network to make connectivity. It's a kind of funny met metric and it may be misleading because you may not want to build bikeways on your high speed um, network. Instead, you may want to have parallel alternative routes. And I don't know that that metric really takes into consideration um, that balance. I think that we're trying to achieve by the vision of a priority network that includes both um, a lot uh, routes aligned on our high speed and also low, you know, low speed networks. But we found and I believe I we shared it as a staff item at one point and this let's call your attention to it again when we looked at um, the not only just the miles of bikeway each year, but we looked at okay, let me share my screen if I am allowed to. Okay, so this is um, in the 2019 level of comfort. So this is in the bikeway plan. This is in the Lawrence bikeway plan, the approved version. We're on page 49 of the document. Um, and you can start to go in here and see, and you, you may want to pull this up on your own machine or print them out to look at them side by side. But you can see from 2019 where we were at in this based on types, you know, shared use path in we, with each level um, of level of three or below. Um, and then there's the 2021 version that we updated and there was um, an increase in that level of comfort uh, across the board, but in a couple places, I think probably that would surprise you. We found that we that streets that were um, Mark, Mark Shared Lane and Bike Boulevard streets, um, thinking about this lower section and even some bike lane streets where if there was any of that type of infrastructure and there was speed reductions related to non-motorized prioritization, that that impacted the model. But I think this not only that table, but Charlie, this map probably gives a pretty good indication about where we're talking about high speed. And you can think about the arterial streets. So think about Wakarusa, 6th Street, Clinton Parkway, 23rd, Iowa. As um, the network where if you're seeing a lot of red lines, those are the high speed streets where we're seeing that um, the level of comfort is least comfortable because there isn't infrastructure. 
So that Wakarusa uh, north of Bob Billings is still red, but it has a bike lane. Correct, because the speed it's an it's an unprotected bike lane on the street on a on a high speed street. So while that may count as like this is an example where the the um, League of American Bicyclists may count that as bike lane on a high speed street. We would say based on this model, based on speed and volume, that rates as a five for level of comfort, which I think is the conversation you had when you were talking about the southern part of Wakarusa and choosing a facility. Interesting. So if we have a bike lane on a 45 mile an hour street, that counts more towards our, our score than a shared use path on the same 45 mile an hour street. Well, they, yeah, they don't even ask about shared use paths, so. But again, this is the project Dave was talking about on 23rd Street from Haskell um, to the eastern city limits. That part is going to be reconstructed um, with shared use path. Future conversation about projects you're working on on 6th Street um, for shared use path. You can see those are some segments that are red that are projects you're actively talking about that are targeting a shared use path facility, which we have said is one of the more higher levels of comfort facility um, on, on a high speed arterial. Interestingly, like you were saying, some of these became a better comfort rating, not due to any new infrastructure being installed, but just due to policy changes. So like reducing the speed limit on residential streets was a big deal. I would argue that actually the red bridge across the river is probably blue because you can now legally ride on that sidewalk. Whereas before being confined to the road, the model would have said this is pretty uncomfortable. So policy changes like that could up our comfort level. And I don't know if that's something that would even be reflected in the report card necessarily. So. Yeah, it, it, it does kind of get to the core of, is this a useful report card to have? Um, and I guess this is probably a question for those who are more active in the biking advocacy community. Is this something people care about? Like for example, in architecture and engineering, Damon, you could probably answer this better. Lead seems to be something people care about. Is, is this kind of like a golden standard for rating bike friendliness in the bike community? Yeah, it's hard for, hard for me to answer, but I mean, I still think it'd be a useful tool just in terms of like benchmarking these metrics versus other communities. I think it's helpful to do that while, yeah, just keeping in mind the caveat that, you know, our shared use paths aren't counting for that one metric. Um, you know, it's kind of like we need to get that report card and then kind of take notes on our own on the side or something like that. I don't know. Uh, but I think, you know, logging in the information and moving forward um, with that tool, I think it's useful to keep doing that. Kuzmiak, MMTC Chair, just out of curiosity, Jessica, how much staff time and resources does this application take up? Or is it relatively cut and paste from the prior year? <laughs> um, it's, it depends. I think it really, um, it matters based on how good our data already is and where we are at in our timing with doing the bike plan. Um, and so the timing um, 
I think with our last processes, we were pretty close in alignment where we were, were had just worked on and uh, were submitting uh, for a bicycle friendly community at the same time when we had just done bike plans. So that obviously helps in the fact that we're already very familiar with documenting existing conditions and some of that metrics. Of course, um, the progress over the years, I think, have made it easier and easier to do in the sense that um, there is a lot more information available in GIS data sets that we can just query pretty simply as, a, as opposed to having to build. Some of them are just simple questions like, do you have bike share or not? Okay, well, if you have bike share, here's another 20 questions you need to answer. Well, if you don't, then it's no and you're done. So it really depends on the extensive amount of uh, effort that maybe the community is making across the board. Some of them are, tell us about this and you're writing text to describe what work you're doing and others are just check boxes like you either have this program or you don't. The entire application, like if in, in the Word document that they give you, just if you want to lay out your draft of questions is 57 pages. Good to know. <laughs> um, thank you, Zmiak, MMTC Chair. The other thing I wanted to ask was compared to the um, Places for Bikes report card, which seems sort of similar, um, would you say they're sort of, I don't know, did they overlap? Are they redundant? Are they are they measuring different things? Like how would you explain to the average citizen that like there's a reason we were applying for two different scoring systems? Yeah, so when we took the opportunity to kind of look at the People for Bikes one, um, we had went recently to the People for Bikes conference um, and saw an opportunity about them talking about some of the work they're doing and their uh, ability to really rank people uh, recognizes the momentum you have. So it's really a way to celebrate momentum and progress you're making in the short term and less about necessarily how your system that maybe you're just starting working on compares to some community who's been working on it for 30 or 40 years because you by perspective may seem like you have not been making progress when the reality is these investments take a very long time. They are slow to, you know, like you have a countywide bikeway plan. We, you know, and you'll see in the pedestrian plan later, the need for some of this stuff is great. And the funding isn't, you know, if we're talking about percentage of overall budget, the funding isn't just as, you know, as large as you would want maybe to advance implementation of your plan. And so I think they're different in the sense that they recognize momentum and working towards something as opposed to just the how long have you been dedicated to this? Because some of the people, the bicycle friendly community stuff from the League of American Bicyclists is going to take a significant amount of time of an, an investment to move a needle. A good example is ridership for, you know, you saw, um, you know, the mode split and bike um, share uh, ridership. That takes a very long time to move that census needle um, for when they're doing journey to work data and information to collect about how people are traveling. And so I think these are, you know, these are long-term plans. I mean, we're not going to reap the rewards for decades, I think, in some cases on by some of their metrics. While in the short term, I would say People for Bikes recognizes your mate, you have a lot of momentum going. Um, they, you know, we ranked third in place of safety on the People for Bikes award. We wrote about the neighborhood traffic management program and the 20 mile per hour speed limit reduction. I mean, so those were policy 
and uh, procedural things that had less to do about necessarily building infrastructure, but creating a climate around education and encouragement for safe streets for all. So I think it's opportunities for us to think really holistically about that sort of programming that's going to get there in terms of safety. And that's part of the one of the reasons we were recognized um, by people for bikes. Thank you for the explanation. It does sound like there is enough of a differentiation between the two scoring systems that it's probably going to do both. And I mean, as somebody on the MMTC, I certainly would love to see this, you know, year after year. I, I just want to make sure that this isn't something that is like a huge demand on staff. I'm like, well, we already have the data. Now we're getting more and it costs a lot of time and energy, but it sounds like that's not necessarily the case. And it may be useful for staff as well to have these additional metrics and benchmarking. Is that correct? I think it's a good opportunity for us to reflect on the national scale, how we're comparing. I think it's really hard to tell the story about making progress um, in some of these regards when you build a single project in a link um, that may be on a network that's about the built environment. And there's so much nuance behind the scenes, I think, in terms of understanding how implementation is. And I would say from the community's perspective across the board for multimodal, when we talk to the community and the public for public engagement, the level of investment is not meeting their expectations in terms of timeframes that they would expect deployment of uh, in multimodal infrastructure. Okay. Let's see. Um, trying to make sure we stay on track here. I, I think we've done a pretty good discussion so far, but I wanted to make sure that those of us who aren't as loud and talkative as me have also gotten a chance to kind of say their piece about the report card or the system or anything. So um, let's see. Althea, before we go on, I don't mean to put you on the spot and feel free to pass, but I'm just curious if you have any thoughts after what you've heard and seen so far. Well, it seems like the bicycle friendly community, they move their metrics. So even between 2012, 2016, 2020, you're not doing straight comparisons between those years. Hmm. So not only are like our shared use bike lanes not taken into account, but it seems like their definition has changed between the years too. And so that's something to keep in mind is that they may change in 2024 what they count as a bike lane. It could include shared use by then, then we'd be way up there because we have all these really great shared use lanes. So it sounds like it's it's kind of difficult to use these sort of uh, report cards to establish long-term data trends, but we can at least do a snapshot in time. Like in 2016, here's how we're doing. Um, yeah, whereas I guess our own metrics are pretty good for keeping long-term trends because they have been relatively consistent, I believe. At least I think so. Um, let's see. Um, Pat, did you have any th thoughts on this? I know you're uh, relatively involved in the biking community, so. Yeah, I mean, I think just, you know, in terms of what we were just talking about in terms of, I mean, I think the number of performance measures that are being uh, put into place through the through the bike plan, through the uh, through the ped plan, um, all of the things with the city strategic plan. I think, you know, we have a good body, you know, and also the work that the MPO and the city 
are doing with with um, you know the measures of of um, you know with the level of comfort and and a lot of other things. I think you know we've got a good um, basis for putting together a plan for for measuring performance in the city and and knowing what those definitions are and, and getting those reflected in those measures. I do think, you know, I've been an advocate for the for the bike friendly community rating for, for a long time. You know, we talked about it a lot in the bike pad uh, task force and and you know I think in general having that comparison to other communities around the country is is very useful. And I do think we just have to be mindful that it may not measure exactly what we want to and but using it as somewhat of a guidepost and then customizing it for our use so that we know it reflects the progress in the in the community and, and setting those setting those goals over time, whether it's, you know, the amount of money that's spent on those facilities or um, the type of facilities that are, you know, that are developed, you know, we've had, you know, we've wrestled with the shared use path versus cycle tracks and that kind of thing, but knowing, you know, what's in the plan to, to move forward and, um, but still keeping this in mind and still going through that process, um, whether it completely measures exactly what, what we want it to measure, I think is, is still a worthwhile exercise. I think if, you know, if we can look at each one of those measures and, and figure out, you know, you know, what they're asking and then, and then what else can we, how else can we customize it to our particular needs? And I think the ones that Charlie picked out particularly are, you know, you know really good examples of the, of the, um, you know, of those measurements and, and how they might differ somewhat. Yeah, that's kind of where I've landed at this, I guess at this stage, like it's not a perfect report card, but it is definitely helpful. So, okay. Um, Damon, what are your thoughts? Any additional metrics you think we should be looking at? Well, I don't know if there's any other metrics. There's at the bottom of the report card, there's some key steps to silver. I mean, there's more than just building the network. I think education. All right, um, All right Dave, I meant to say Damon, but. Um, oh, sorry. <laughs> that's okay, you've already started. So if, you, if there was more you wanted to say, sorry. Well, I was just, yeah, I'll just finish quickly. I mean, there, you know, other than the metrics of building the network, there's other, other things with it you know, surrounding education um, that can be done and encouragement. Um, and, 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 some of, and some of the work we've done, I think with having a bike boulevard, having our first bike boulevard, lowering the speed limits are, are steps that may help. Um, but um, I'll, let you, I'll let Damon answer since you asked him. <laughs> right. Damon, David. Yeah, just yeah, pretty close. one other metric that we didn't, hadn't mentioned yet, I don't think was uh, bike month and bike to work events, we scored average where the typical silver scores good. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know how they measure that metric, but um, it would be interesting to see more bike events in the community. I'm, yeah, I, I'm kind of settled on like, I was hoping there would be some, this would stimulate conversation to get us to find like something we could focus on and lift up as. Hey, we need to get the community to embrace this. 
Yeah. And that would get people energized again. Because it feels like, honestly, in the last couple of years, we've, it feels kind of dead to me. Like there's just not the same level of excitement about what's happening with the bicycling energy. And so I'm not sure what it is. We had the bike boulevard. Oh. I mean, COVID, yes, I'm sure. But I don't want to blame it on that. So maybe it's more like what's the opportunity in front of us now to mobilize attention around making Lawrence, whether it's designated or not, making it seem to be a place that really uh, it, it gets excited about people riding bikes. You know, the, the Lawrence Loop is now kind of in a nice path forward. I think it's destined to be finished and that got people excited a few years back and we're still making progress. The Bike Boulevard got some energy going. Um, what is the, what's the thing? that people can get excited about that, um, you know, we can use our our place up here to be able to, you know, help either catalyze it or to add momentum to whatever that effort is. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not, I'm not finding it. So there's a lot just of kind of looking, looking and I'm still going, mm, I don't think we've hit it yet, but there's something there. We just need to figure it out. And then hopefully there's some new energy around it. Mm. Like I know a lot of cities do like uh, just one that comes to mind is LA does like a sick lobby. Uh, it's mm -hmm. I guess a monthly, a monthly planned route where they close streets to traffic for like a loop that everyone takes their kids out and rides the loop for sick lobby. Uh, I think it'd be really cool if like Lawrence had its own kind of small version and you know, scale it to the size of the participants, you know, maybe it could start small. And if you get growing participation, maybe it's a whole big event at some point in the future, but. Um, a lot of those really, I mean, they take a lot of effort by yeah, advocacy sure. groups to usually pull those together. Yeah. And I guess I'm not, I'm not saying we, you know, wouldn't try to make something like that happen, but our role in that work um, probably to be more of a enabler, right? Not yeah. an instigator. So yeah, I'm not sure what the. Well, I think the other thing. I mean, there are a lot of a lot of events that are going on, but not necessarily targeted to. I mean, there are some like last weekend. It was supposed to be the Trails for All on the. Burroughs Trail and and some of those kinds of events, yep. of course, it got canceled because of, of the weather. But uh, you know the the Lawrence Bike Club, you know, sponsors lots of lots of rides other than just the big ones that were listed here. And and the Mountain Bike Club are very active. The gravel bike community is very active. But mm. harnessing some of that energy into the into the community a little bit more, you know, like like the kids bike races that were associated with the you know, with the with the races in town and some of those kinds of things that just raise the visibility for uh, the community at large, I guess, to, you know, to make that more, more visible. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, and the KU on Bikes, you know, did some activities that, you know, and I don't know, I haven't really followed to know, you know, what what's going on with, with that group now knowing whether you know there's those kinds of things but those advocacy groups or those interest groups that you know could help 
um, bring bring more attention in in the community to 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 the activities and to the facilities that exist in the in the community. Is bike share? What is the status of bike share? Because I feel like that was another one of those. It added energy around this topic, and it flopped. So it, it's flopped at least twice that I know. I was on yeah. KU Senate when the first time they tried to do it, like 2002, 2003, mm -hmm. and there was like 10 bikes, a very, very small program to start, and it didn't last the semester. There's no interest and the bikes disappeared. And then I know this last round, there was the bikes that were just dumped. And I don't know what happened. I don't know the full backstory of that, but you know, they had a big push and then it just kind of falls away after a year. Maybe KU's not the place for that to be happening citywide. Right. Like start with like a, a scooter program downtown or something like that, start much smaller and then get bigger. So from the O'Ride bike share, they had 200 bikes in the community and we reported in our 2021 league application, there were 37,000 trips on bicycle. Um, that year, that company has ceased operations. So, so did it fail, or did the the company fail? I mean, is this a community that would support bike share if we had a company that was a contender in that space? I don't know that I could reflect on that. I don't know that I have enough information for that. They did deploy electric bikes, and I think they cost more, but they were more uh, readily re rented just because of some of the elevation and geography. Um, I think the interpretation for land use um, to create dockless locations off campus was that you had to have in excess of code required bike parking. And I think that was very prohibitive um, to make bike share a success here as the pilot that they rolled out. And you say that you're saying the parking was the issue? I'm saying the city determination about where they could place bike share bikes in dockless locations. So think about just an imaginary fence or boundary was only in locations where private businesses had in excess of code required bike parking. Interesting. Is that something that could be reevaluated now though, since we're allowing for the parklets to stay up? I mean, I would think that no company would entertain operating bike share here under those conditions in the future. That's pretty big. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've heard issues with parking for bikes and obviously it's, you know, been an issue for a while, but I hadn't connected the dots that that might be the, what makes us inhospitable for bike share. I'd like to learn more about that. That would be a conversation with the planning staff. Of course. <laughs> um, I just wanted to point out Stephen Mason is in the in the gallery. I don't know if he's here to speak or just to observe, but Nick, you probably aren't privy to see that since you're. No, but thank you for reminding me that he's there. Yeah, if you have any inputs. That'd be great. And if not, no pressure. <laughs> um, I came to speak on some of the, or answer any questions on uh, cycling education uh, in the community. 
Uh, as David mentions, I am a league certified instructor through the League of American Bicyclists. Um, we did a training here uh, a few years back. I should know that off the top of my head, but uh, we did have hold a training here in town, mostly for uh, local individuals. We did have a few from Topeka and Kansas City as well join us. Um, Quite honestly, we are at a reevaluation state uh, for cycling education here. Um, Parks and Rec has some capabilities. Uh, in the past, we have run a youth cycling camp. Um, it is fun. It is definitely not geared towards, but attracts kids who are already on bikes. Um, and can encourage that and grow that. Uh, we're, I don't feel that we were ever quite at that point of getting brand new riders. Uh, we certainly had some kids that were not strong riders and we could improve that, um, but it was also a little bit older than uh, some of those kids. You know, you, you typically learn fairly young and uh, our camp started at eight right around that eight or nine there starts to be those social pressures where if you don't know how to ride a bike you you're kind of not starting um so i think that the program in the schools uh was good and, and that's helping getting everybody onto bikes that's something that we could build that momentum off of unfortunately just like everybody else i am running into staffing issues this summer uh, I've had some great lead counselors that have, have really taken that camp for the last few years that it's operated, and uh, they've moved on to different chapters in their life for this summer. So uh, we are still pursuing that. We're kind of running out of planning time for this summer, but it's still on the table, it's still something that I'm working on. As far as adults, uh, we had a class, we called it Confident Capable Commuters. Uh, which was a mouthful. It was based off of the uh, Traffic Skills 101 from the League of American Bicyclists. That we let uh, lapse because the Lawrence Bicycle Club, their Monday night rides were better at what we were doing. They were serving uh, the same purpose in that they were touching on the same skills and uh, practice with a better social environment. Uh, you know, our, our class was a three-day class with an instructor and a few people, uh, whereas the Monday night ride was a social event. And you could come each Monday or to the ones that worked for you. And uh, I believe that one was temporarily suspended because of you know, concerns around uh, COVID. Uh, but I, I think that's kind of, that, that was more successful. Uh, there was also a bit of a burden on the people leading that, which were primarily people from that class of instructors. So there, that was kind of a community reinvestment and um, really bolstering that seemed to be the better route than trying to continue the Parks and Rec program. So we're, we're kind of coming out of that time, looking forward, what's this summer gonna look like? Uh, it, it's, it's certainly something that we are evaluating and looking at, but you know, we're kind of rebooting both those youth and uh, adult kind of offerings. I got just one question. I know we're at the end of our hour, but Nick, is that okay if I ask? Yeah. So I've seen, uh, you know, Stephen, you work for Parks and Rec. I know you can't speak on their behalf entirely, but I've seen uh, parks that are designed 
for, uh, I, I assume primarily kids, to learn how to ride. Mm -hmm. And it's the, it's the physical design of the park to encourage kids to ride, not instructors per se. So have you seen those? Do you have any clue that whether they're successful, if they get a lot of families involved in um, helping teach their kids to ride? I've seen a few examples of those. Uh, mostly, uh, you know, I, I was recently down in uh, Bentonville for a conference and they had that first uh, bicycle playground opportunity there. Uh, I think that builds a little bit on general community momentum. Um, you know, that, that playground is at a very popular trailhead in general uh, along a heavily used shared use path uh, that's got a regional draw uh, and connection to it. Uh, so I think that there's certainly potential in those. I don't know that that's something that we've looked into uh, here. And, and as you mentioned, I can't speak to that from a department perspective. Uh, that tends to be more on the park side uh, of the of the department. Thanks. I didn't realize that Arkansas had one. They do, um, and it is, you know, it's wooden features, uh, some dirt, it's natural surface trail. It's, it's more designated to uh, kids who are doing what their parents are doing. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, thank you. Thanks for coming today. Absolutely. All right, so we're at the end of our hour, but I wanted to make sure if there's any public comment to get that in before we close for good here. So um, are there any members of the public in the room? I cannot see from this particular vantage point, so no. No. John, I see you on the call. Um, if you're interested in providing comment, sure, but if, if you're just listening, that's all right too. So I'm going to give you the shot if you want. So if not, um, I said some final thoughts based on now what I've heard. Um, so it sounds like um, Parks and Rec is is probably the place to go for bicycle bicycle educations, bicycle education. Um, but staffing issues are a problem. There are bicycle advocacy groups who host these sort of events. It seems um, like Lawrence Bike Club or or Flat, and there's also possibly a an opportunity here to maybe close down roads and make a much larger kind of wider loop for larger numbers of people to come around to as kind of a big event like Damon was saying with the uh, Cicla Via. So I wonder if there if these are like three disparate threads that could be united and sort of combined, you know, uh, city MSO closes down the streets, parks and rec kind of spearheads the education part, and then it's all staffed by volunteers of these advocacy associations. So I don't know, um, maybe something worth pursuing in the future. I might look into this further. And Stephen, I might try to contact you offline and just see if there's an opportunity for that, so. Absolutely. Anyway, sounds good. Anybody else have any final thoughts before we do a quick break here? Is, is May still bicycle month? It is. I thought so. So appreciate having this topic on our agenda <laughs> this month. Um, Maybe next year we can aspire to have a little more, you know, evidence of our effort around promoting bicycling in Lawrence. And also thanks to to uh, Dave for for, uh, for throwing a I'd say a pretty thorough collection of links together at a relatively 
late notice. This will be helpful going forward um, to kind of have all this in the same spot. So thanks for doing that. Sure. So with that, I, I, found, I would say I found the application, the 57 page application and emailed it to all the commissioners. Thank, Thank you. you. Oh, and also thanks to Jessica for spending some time with us and explaining the uh, history and potential future. So it's a collaborative effort here. So um, with that, I think we can close the study session and break till 6.15 is the plan and come back with the regular portion of our meeting. So on a good day. Yep. All right. See you in a bit. We're here. Yep, we're yep. ready to go. All right. Does anybody else uh, join time or is it still just us five? Just five. Okay. I guess that's a quorum. So, yeah, that's a majority of our, our full maximum of nine. So, sounds good. Well, in that case, um, yeah, welcome back or welcome for all those of you who are just joining us to the May 2nd, 2022 MMTC meeting. <laughs> Um, this is now our, our normal session, and before we get started, I have a feeling there's um, either a Zoom or a hybrid preamble that Dave or Christina have to go over. Uh, no, we the one we did at the beginning is, is sufficient enough, so we're ready to go. Okay, and we already took roll, so all good, right? Yes. Sweet. Um, quick question, just because I'm not sure if I caught it the first time. Do we still need to state our name and position before we speak? Um, you should still do that. Uh, the 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 meetings being audio recorded as well, and so um, you should you should still do that. State your name. Okay. The, even even if we're in person. Yes. Okay. I'll do my best to remember. Sure, Brian. We've received. <laughs> Thank you. And I know <laughs> folks will forget from time to time, so we're not, not that big a deal. But yes, um, please do. State okay. your name. Sounds good. Well, this is Nick Kuzmiak, the chair of the MMTC speaking, and we're going to start with agenda item B, which is approve the minutes of the study session and regular meeting of April, um, which we're held on different days. So. I guess first, are there any questions, comments, or suggested provisions on the on the uh, minutes, or or not? Okay, well, if not, I would end it. Oh, sorry, Dave. I was going to say this, Commissioner Brian. I will move to approve the April 2022 minutes. This is Commissioner Clad, I'll second. Okay, I have a motion by. Commissioner Bryan to approve the minutes, second by Commissioner Collette. Um, Christina, can you please take uh, the roll call for this? Yes. Damon Baltuska? Yes. Aaron Payton is absent. Pat Collette? Yes. Charlie Bryan? Yes. Nick Kuzmiak? Yes. Douglas Redding is absent. Althea Schnacki? Yes. Motion carries five to zero. Okay. Thank you, Christina. Now we're going to move on to agenda item C, public comment. So this is for general public comment for any item that is not on the regular agenda. Um, members of the public are limited to three minutes. And as a general rule, the commission does not make decisions or have additional discussion on these items, but they will definitely be taken into account. So shall we start with people who are in the room? Is there anybody in the commission room who is going to comment? 
looks pretty empty. Yeah, there's no members of the public in the commission room. Okay. Any general public comments from the phone or Zoom? Okay. Not hearing anything. Um, we're going to move on to agenda item D, which is agenda items. So, um, first one up is approving the 2022 MMTC work plan, and this is based off of our our last meeting where we had comments and some revisions. So, um, Dave, is this you? Yes, Dave Cronin. Um, so I've I've attached the work plan with the edits that we made. Uh, at last month's meeting, um, so there it is. It is there for approval, or any other changes you'd like to make. Okay, excuse me, I come MTC chair. Um, let's see. It sounds like there was. <laughs> There was at one point on the work plan something about planning commission collaboration efforts and um, I guess I'd not caught that it's no longer on the work plan. So I guess the question to the rest of the commissioners is do we want to, ex to explicitly state still that we want to have these joint meetings with the planning commission or is trying to be involved with the land development code update sufficient for that? So this commissioner Brian, I I feel like it's a, you know, it had been a high priority for us to develop a relationship with the planning commission. Um, we made some efforts in that direction, and it seems like it would be remiss to just drop it entirely in the hopes that we would be involved in the land development code update. We specifically talked about parking and had some advice about parking, uh, whether we should have maximum parking requirements um, or no parking requirements. Talked about on-street parking. Uh, it's pretty good discussion and I think we recognize that parking feels like it goes under planning, but it's not something that they get a lot of uh, airtime to talk about in term in terms of public parking it's more about the you know private development comes in and they're reviewing that it meets its parking requirements so that one seemed like a good place for collaboration um i know there's some other ones we, my brain's not quite registering what those are but i think we had a few that it seemed like it'd be worthwhile to continue that dialogue Excuse me, I come MTC chair. I think the other one, at least that I recall, is the, the potential for collaboration on on revising street design standards for subdivision regulations, which oddly enough follows under planning commission instead of transportation, despite the fact that it is for roads. So um, I think that may be another point of collaboration. I, this is Commissioner Bryan again. I think the other one was the the planning commission reviews traffic impact studies. Um, those aren't presented to us at all. Yeah, it seems like omission. another one of those areas that maybe it's not a, I mean, maybe we change the procedure or ask for the procedure to be changed. Maybe it's just a FYI, but when 
land use decisions are being made and it's going to impact traffic, it would make sense that we would somehow be more informed of that. So I mean, every time we have this discussion, it feels like we always create a list. <laughs> and so then it's just how do we engage in that work in a way that is productive and, you know, supports uh, the decisions the planning commission has to make and the city commission has to make. That gives me like an MTC chair. So I think that the general line item here, participate in Lawrence Douglas County planning processes is in the spirit of what we're trying to get at. I guess the question is what explicit items do we want to have? So I guess I would argue that there's a couple ways this could go down. We could either have another joint meeting with the planning commission, everybody all together. We could maybe just have a study session with Jeff Crick, or we could try to form some sort of smaller scale joint committee between transportation and planning to, as commissioners, drive things uh, forward in a little more streamlined of a manner than having 20 people in the room at the same time. Um, I don't know if there's any other options I'm completely leaving off the table here, but Charlie, based on those choices, if, I mean, assuming that those are the only choices, do you think one of those should be added to the, the greens and reds there? This Commissioner Brian, I, I think a study session, if we're looking for, you know, more topics, this, that would be an easy one to add in and having Jeff, um, I think he's been to us before, so mm -hmm. that seems completely within what we've done before. So yeah. I'd say having him come back, but maybe be more specific about what we'd like to hear about is what are the transportation considerations the Planning Commission addresses? Um, and I assume he would come up with a similar list to what we would generate. Mm -hmm. But if Did he can put his perspective on that, it would help us maybe understand better what role we might have with um, planning decisions. Yeah, sorry to interrupt you. I agree um, that it would, I feel like he can speak for the planning commission, planning department, both, um, which would help. I'm wondering if just to streamline things, could we combine that with that land development code update, potential study session where Jeff would be the one presenting that anyway, I would imagine. Um, and then, you know, we can maybe start with saying here's what's going on in the land development code update now that it's more open-ended of a thing like the the code may change to require different processes um would that be a good time to maybe brainstorm where else we could go with the collaboration or should it be a completely separate session this is commissioner brian i'd i'd be comfortable with him trying to do both i mean probably more efficient for his time. You mean both in the same session? Yeah, this sure. Collette, if, I mean, if he wasn't able to complete both of those, then, you know, there'd always be a potential for asking him back a second time. But if we could handle both of those in one study session, that would be, that would be a, a start on those anyway. Thank you, MMTC Chair. I think then we could use that as a potential jumping out point if we do think that there's a further need for those full joint meetings with Planning Commission or even that combined committee of, you know, made up of commissioners from both sides. So we can maybe at least start with Jeff as a touch point. Okay. Um, do, 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 do you think we need to actually like edit the text here or? Um, 
don't know. How much of a change do you think we need to make to incorporate that? Um, Dave Cronin, um, I, I don't know if, unless there's some, if there's some language you want to put in there specifically, we can do that. I don't, I don't know if I have anything off the top of my head. I think, um, I think we could have a study session and maybe generate some ideas or some talking points of things. Partic I mean, you mentioned the subdivision regulations. That's part of the land development code um, that's going to be looked at. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, is the rest uh, of the commission okay with not changing the text and just having the implication that this is going to be a talk by Jeff that will also include other things other than just directly an update? This is Commissioner Bryan. I'm comfortable with that, Nick. I think, you know, you're the chair. I think if you're continuing to understand what we like, then advocate for that, you know, when the agendas get set. That'll be fine by me. Okay. And Dave, sorry to cut you off. Were you about to say something else earlier? No. Okay. All right. So it sounds like no, no change explicitly, but we've kind of understood that this is not just a land development code update that we're asking for. And this, this won't happen for a couple of months at least. I don't think the steering committee is even going to be in place for the next month or two. So it may take a while to get there. Okay. Um, any other comments on the work plan? Okay. Not sure. So this is Commissioner Brian. So on the page that describes the committee work, I guess I'm unsure how we are with that. Like it feels pretty hmm. um, uncertain to me, like that we have clear expectations around committee work and even membership on there. Sorry. <laughs> Um, I think what we maybe had mentioned last time is that a couple of the study sessions and agenda items could maybe lead to a clearer vision of what these committees could be, I guess, reconstituted as. So like for, you know, the equity committee, there's a, there's a green study session here for having a study session with the director, director of equity and inclusion and or staff. And then perhaps that could give us a better idea of what a new committee should look like. Um, at least that was my recollection, but it may be a little fuzzy. Maybe so one way to think about this is the first column, you know, is the committees. Do we need all these committees? And then second, there's the membership, but I think that's maybe a to be determined. But the micro mobility one, I don't know that we've had much discussion on that for a while, and I'm not sure we have a need for a committee. Yeah. Um, so that one feels like it's just hanging out because we haven't deleted it. Uh, I think those companies are all bust at this point, right? Or at least Via right is. Like, who's going to bring scooters anymore, right? There's Dave Cronin. There's still interest. I'm starting. It's starting to pick back up. Okay. So well, I guess maybe we hang on to it. But yeah, the the committee hasn't met for two years. So, um, but we did. We did form that, and so I included it on the list. Uh, of course, obviously, the pedestrian plan is kind of wrapping up. So it's transit route redesign. But um, the others, yeah, they're, um, those were the other ones that we established. So um, at some point, if we want to continue the work or if something comes up under those that could get work, correspond to that committee, we 
may want to appoint other members, but that's up to the board if they want to do that. If you want to do that. <laughs> I mean, that micromobility one is the one I would just say we can always start it up again, but at this point, it it feels like we've neglected to pay attention to what we've been doing. That just, I mean, performance management we or measurement, we did attempt that last year. It didn't yeah. get very far, but I think that but the, was, yeah, the plan is, still has legs. The, yeah. And it seems reflected in our work plan. The equity committee seems also reflected in the work plan. The other ones are our representation in in committees that exist independent of us. So those feel completely fine. But so I would say yeah, the removing the micro mobility one would make sense at this point. Excuse me, I can MTC chair. I guess my my question is for Dave, do you expect a micro mobility related agenda item in the next year or so? Or is it quiet enough that we're not likely to see much movement there? Um, Dave Cronin, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that were to come up in the next year. Okay. Um, I mean, it's probably still fine to, to lead it for now. And if we do need to have another one, sure. But at this point, I think the duty of that particular committee was to, you know, direct staff to do, do the research and figure out what ordinance is going to look like, help with the RFP. And th that's all been done. Um, so at this point, I guess you could probably just reissue the RFP because we already approved it. I don't know if that's fine or not, but I think the more detailed work of that committee has been undertaken already. So we could probably just leave that to the larger commission if we need to. Um, so I agree with Charlie that we could probably strike that one. And then with both equity and performance measures, I think it, um, both of those have a corresponding study session or agenda item on the work plan that will hopefully kind of Kind of reinvigorate them and actually kick them off you know i'm not sure i i love the formatting of this table just in that it, it lumps representation of mmtc folks on other committees versus our own committees but that's not a huge deal so um i just i wish i'd seen it earlier so anyway um so other than striking micromobility any other um comments or requested revisions here. Okay. In my case, I'll wait for somebody to motion to adopt this one or approve it rather. This is Commissioner Brian. I move that we adopt the 2022 MMTC work plan as presented with the removal of the micromobility committee. It's Commissioner Schnocki, I'll second. Okay. Christina, can you please take roll for this? Yes, give me one moment. Damon Baltuska. Yes. And Caden is absent. Pat Collette. Yes. Charlie Bryan. Yes. Nick Kuzmiak. Yes. Douglas Redding is absent. Althea Schnacki. Yes. Motion carries five to zero.
Thank you for that. Oh, geez, I totally forgot about public comments. Um, does anybody, do any members of the public have comment on this item before we fully move on? I apologize for that. Okay, looks like I got away with this this time. Yeah, I apologize for forgetting to remind you. But we don't have anyone that raised their hand and there's no one present here. So. Yeah. Thanks, Dave. It is technically my job, but I appreciate you taking blame for it <laughs> just for fun. Um, okay. Let's go with agenda item number two. And um, this time, hopefully everybody will keep me honest because there is definitely public comment for this one. So, all right. We are going to be considering approval of the revisions to the non-motorized projects prioritization policy, lovingly referred to as the NMPPP. Uh, good evening, Chair and Commissioner. This is Jake Baldwin, Engineering Program Manager. Um, last month during the study session, we discussed potential changes to the non-motorized projects prioritization policy. And um, tonight we've got a revised policy before you for consideration. <clears throat> um, the revisions are, are real similar to what we discussed um, last month with one exception. And I'll elaborate on that here um, shortly. But the, the proposed changes that you see in your agenda um, packet will be um, number one to align with the Lawrence pedestrian plan and the Lawrence safe routes to school plan, um, adding a third project list for sidewalk replacement removing section 3.3, the call for projects. Um, number four, changes to scoring, um, including the priority networks category, safety, and as well as the addition to equity. And then um, last is the update to section 5.2 and 5.3 to align with the five-year plan. Um, so now the change you are not seeing in the revised policy that we did discuss um, last month is changing the pedestrian project scoring um, category from pedestrian access to pedestrian demand. Um, essentially, our modeling work wasn't as far along as we had thought it was in order to calculate that pedestrian demand. Um, so we, we really just need more time to get that done correctly before we implement it into the policy. <clears throat> um, we're going to continue to work on that, however, because we, we really recognize the importance um, of the continuity it offers with prioritizing pedestrian routes in parallel with the sidewalk improvement program. Um, so with these changes um, and included in the item are updated projects lists to, to really show the effects of the policies between projects. So you'll see that last column on those pages is the, the difference. Um, and then um, also wanted to provide an update on our call for projects. So um, we did complete the call for projects this year. It ran um, during the majority of March. There were 69 visitors to the survey, um, 18 statements that equates to um, about 54 minutes of public comment. Um, there were 16 specific projects that were identified, five of which do not appear in the project lists or the board's bikes plan. Um, and then the summary sheet um, in there also indicates staff doesn't plan on adding any new projects from the survey. And that same summary sheet was added to the, the outcome tab of the survey in order to follow up with everybody who um, submitted comments. Um, and uh, with that, um, I can turn it back over to, to you, Chair, and be happy to take any questions the Commission has. Okay. Thank you, Jake. This is Nick Kuzmiak, MMTC Chair. Um, I guess the first question I have in Sorry, you probably provided this already. Um, do you have a, a link or something to a map of all these projects? Because as I read through, I'm realizing some of them I don't fully recognize, and I'd be interested to kind of see where they are. Um, for example, the Massachusetts Street Bridge. Um, I, I didn't know there was a proposed project for that, for example. So um, I don't know if that is on the interactive GIS or not. 
Jake Baldwin, um, engineering program manager. I believe those appear on the MMTC dashboard, uh, but if not, we do have those live on a, a pedestrian project and a bike project maps. Okay, thanks. I will start checking that out as I continue to lead the meeting. <laughs> um, any other members of the commission had any, do you have any general comments, uh, specific questions for, for Jake? This is Commissioner Collette. Um, I was looking at the 2022 call for non-motorized projects and, you know, with the intent, I guess, of, of matching up and, you know, providing feedback about, you know, whether there's already a project uh, on the list or, you know, how it did or not, you know, didn't align with adopted plan. So on the very first one I looked at, it was a PED project and it said P220. And I looked for that on the on the master list, but couldn't find that anywhere. So is that, um, are there other places that we're looking when we when we see those numbers? Sure. This is Jake Baldwin, engineering program manager. Uh, Commissioner Collette, that project 220 is actually part of the, the Queens Road Capital Improvement Plan project. So we, mm -hmm. we specifically filter those projects out of our project list because they've got that funding already established. Our, our project listed really is, is a tool for us to find projects to find funding for. So yes, that project does exist and it, it's on the, the pedestrian map and on the MMTC dashboard. Okay. So it's already been funded and that's why it's not on this list. Yes, that is correct. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Mayor, MMTC Chair. So Jake, I'm on the, the MMTC dashboard map. Um, do you know if there's a way to get any more information about the project? Because um, it's, it's it's definitely good to see the locations uh, for sure. But, you know, for this bridge one, for example, I'm not entirely sure what that would constitute because like there already is a sidewalk on the bridge. So um, I know I'm kind of focusing on the single example, which is probably not the focus of this, this agenda item. I'm just, um, Trying to make sure that in the future I have a, a place where I can understand what all the projects would be. And Nick, which, uh, excuse me, this is Jake Baldwin, engineering program manager. Chair, which uh, project were you referring to on the bridge? Uh, it's going to be called B140 and B141. So there's the Massachusetts and a Vermont Street Bridge project that are pretty high scoring, too. And I'll, I'll share my screen here if I'm able to, and I can display our, our bike project dashboard, which has those projects and will contain more information. It should break down um, the, the different scores from our project list. So bear with me one moment, please. Yeah, that would be awesome to see. All right, so you sh if you're seeing my screen now, um, I'm, I'm zoomed in here on the Kansas River Bridge. So if we select one of these projects here, um, it'll, it'll break out the different scoring from the non-motorized plan. So how it got to its 16 total score, um, currently listed as unfunded. And, and what we do is after um, we get the 
non-motorized five-year plan approved, we go back into these maps and un update them. So if this should um, be funded through that project, then you know our project status should be selected. Did you have any other specific questions on this one, Chair? Um, yeah. So, for example, on Safe Routes to School, each of the projects has kind of an aerial view and, you know, the length of sidewalk that's going to be in sort of a concept design of what exactly it is. Um, whereas here, all we know is that there is going to be a project and it's going to be here. What we don't really know is it a bike lane? Are they going to add on to the bridge? Or are they going to take away a car lane? There's a lot of ways this could go down, and I'm kind of curious to see how it is intended. Well, excuse me, this is Jake Baldwin, engineering program manager. With our, with our bike projects, a lot of times you don't have those facilities chosen yet, so we wouldn't have that information really until we, we got to design. Uh, we do have project maps for all our pedestrian projects. I don't know that we've got those um, linked through that map or not. I would have to, to check into that, but I don't believe we do. But we do produce those every year as part of our, our work on the five-year plan and the non-motorized plan. Okay. I think that's probably enough from my knowledge of this, right? I'd I guess I didn't realize that it's it's less that there are projects and more that this is a gap that is going to become a project and we don't really know the specifics yet, but we do know that this gap needs fill basically. Okay, sounds good. Um, so does anybody else have any kind of technical questions? Um, I'd like to move on to public comment, if not. Okay. Is there anybody in the room or shall we go straight to uh, straight to Zoom? There's uh, Dave Cronin, still no one in the room. Okay. Anybody on the call, please raise your hand. All right, Michael Allman, you have three minutes. Hi, good evening. I'm Michael Allman speaking for Sustainability Action Network. Um, I would hope that maybe you had a chance to read the comments that we submitted online because it pretty much states what our concern is. But um, in the discussion of the previous agenda item, I was struck by just how much your work plan um, aligns itself with the city's strategic plan. The strategic plan being, of course, the overriding plan that governs all other plans, including your work plan and uh, any multimodal work that you are planning. And right at the top of the list there is the the um, uh, elevate inclusive community input into transportation decision making. Uh, of course, in our comments that we submitted, that's what we emphasize as well that the non-motorized projects prioritization plan, uh, policy is a very important uh, avenue for public input. Um, it seems that striking the call for, for uh, projects just is counter to everything the strategic plan emphasizes. Uh, it certainly and not inviting and welcoming community members to collaborate and innovate with, um, you know, with the engineering department. I, I find a, a strong contrast too, like when Sustainability Action Network engages with Parks and Recreation Department, 
they are very welcoming. They're always willing to hear input and and discuss in emails and phone calls. So I find this, you know, very surprising and uh, counterproductive. And like we say, we're requesting that you uh, deny the request to delete call for projects. So I needn't say any more. Um, thank you very much for your time and consideration. Thank you, Michael. Do we have any other public comment on the phone line? Okay, doesn't sound like it. So but that will take it back up to the commission. And this is something that I wanted to discuss because I've been back and forth on it and I'm not entirely sure I have all the information at top of mind to make a decision. So um, I guess I'd like to bounce this issue off commission and staff. So, so I can understand the concern over removing really any avenue for public input, um, especially given the strategic plan is kind of emphasizing that a lot. On the other hand, I do recognize that, you know, a lot of what staff has to do with this is basically sort through things that are already on the list um, and takes a lot of staff time that could probably be better put towards something else. And that, you know, even though it is technically an avenue for solicitation of projects, it may not be the most effective one. I also recognize that there is an existing CIP, you know, call for projects for the city where where transportation related projects that have a capital value of over $100,000 are, are, are you know, possible to get on the list if you're a citizen. So there is still an avenue. Um, is it the right avenue? I don't know, but it, it seems that it's, it's efficient for, I guess, all sorts of capital project requests to go through the same, same door, basically. So um, I guess the other thing that's come to mind is, is that, um, I recall, Jesus, probably two years ago at this point, that we got a letter from the East Lawrence Neighborhood Association about a whole bunch of ideas that they had for the neighborhood on how to, you know, calm traffic, improve crossings, make it safer for kids and pedestrians, stuff like that. And there wasn't really anything we could do about it. There wasn't really like a defined solicitation process to be able to say, hey, these are cool ideas. Let's maybe look into them and see if they make any sense. Um, in, in conversations outside of this, Commission have learned that on the Traffic Safety Commission, which predates my my time like in Lawrence at all, um, there may have been a, a more, I guess, coherent process to receive citizen input and then turn that into an agenda item, which could eventually become a project. That sounds like that was sort of the precursor to either the CIP or the NMPPP. So I guess I'd like to hear from either people who've been here for a while, significantly longer than that than I've been here, or staff. Um, on just more general thoughts on like, are we losing a really important conduit for citizen involvement or do we still have that with the regular CIP? And if we are losing it, can we replace this kind of ground level engagement with something better as part of MMTC processes? This is Commissioner Bryan. I appreciate having this some discussion on this. I've been kind of struggling as well. I agree that the there's a need for us to find a convenient way for the public to give input. And I think what we've been doing hasn't been working um, as well as it needs to for staff. And it's clear from looking at the list 
that it's largely redundant. So I wonder if the public either doesn't understand that or if they're trying to tell us something else. For example, maybe they recognize it's on the list, but they're advocating for it to be higher in its scoring, which then gets to, you know, how do we manage, you know, essentially what we've created, which is the data-driven process, when the public isn't quite in sync with that. And it would seem like both data and the community need to be, you know, considered in those decisions. Um, I don't have an easy answer though. I think there's definitely confusion uh, that I had around the CIP having its own process and then we have us having our own process. And I, I, to me, that was kind of what I learned at the last conversation we had on this was that creates confusion uh, for everyone, I think. Um, so I feel like we're probably identifying there's a problem here, but we're not going as far as what's a better approach. Um, I don't have that answer either. But I, I do think that probably discontinuing the practice is the right next step, but we need to then think about what other mechanism we're gonna put in place to allow the public to initiate a project they see as a priority. And for the Traffic Safety Commission, I'm not sure, Nick, that it was as open-ended as um, you might have heard there's still a pretty clear process, I think, where a neighborhood could essentially petition for traffic calming. Um, and then it went on its own merit, you know, in terms of how it was evaluated and whether it got to the Traffic Safety Commission for a decision was, was pretty standardized how that process worked out. Um, there weren't, wasn't a lot of funding for those projects, so I think that was the biggest frustration with that, with that approach. Um, but people did feel like they had an official path to getting a, a kind of a city response to a, to an issue. And so maybe that's what we need to do is figure out what's a way to have an official, not a hearing, but, you know, give give people a chance to be heard and um, get an official opinion from staff and mm. our opinion if that's necessary. I don't know what that looks like, but it feels like that's probably what's being asked for here is outside of our longer term planning processes that the MPO kind of stewards, is there a mechanism for the public to kind of get official opinion from us and from staff? On a, on a matter that they think is important for us to hear. So, and maybe that's not the same as just going to public comment, which feels pretty informal. You know, it's not probably rising to the level of getting an official response because we don't even give responses to public comment items, in fact, so. This is Commissioner Collette. I have a couple of thoughts. One, uh, you know, I think at the last meeting we talked about, well, you know, people can submit to CIP, which is a $100,000 threshold. You know, when I think generally when people are submitting these, you know, proposals on this list, on this 
it's a bike ped project. They have, you know, no idea what threshold of cost that really is, you know. I don't know from look, looking at it until it's presented. So I think that's one barrier if you're setting a threshold and, you know, asking people to respond to that um, at that at that level, it's it's pretty difficult. The second is the is just that in terms of you know how to get you know a coordinated input of of ideas and you know I think Charlie you mentioned you know East Lawrence you know coming to you I think about the pilot project in Old West Lawrence you know where there's uh, you know community involvement and you know ideas come from that in terms of of safety for for that uh, for that neighborhood and that's perhaps some sort of mechanism of coordinating with with land or or individual um, neighborhood associations that that want to you know look at their at their neighborhood and make make proposals and or present that to uh, to this to this group and um, you know and I still don't you know in terms of the timeline and whether it fits you know whether it's uh, on the priority network and all of that that would still you know still be an issue. Um, in terms of how that fits in with the overall plans and available funding. But, um, you know, at least if it was, um, you know, from an entire neighborhood, that that might be, you know, that might be a way of structuring it so that the public could still bring those ideas to the, uh, to the uh, MMTC. So I, I, again, don't know specifically what that might look like, but, you know, I, I really struggle with having that struck from the, you know, from the um, prioritization plan uh, without, you know, having something to, to substitute to make sure that that, that, that public input is, is available beyond just uh, public comment. Yeah, like a little bit more concerted effort to actually have it instead of just the neighborhoods who are the best organized, you know, sending a letter and us hopefully getting around to it, right? Um, Jessica, I saw that you joined. I figured you might have something to add to this conversation. So, but if if not yet, we can always come back later. Yeah, Jessica Martinger, Transportation Planning Manager. We had a lot of internal conversations about this too, recognizing that many of us have um, recently been trained in the International Association of Public Participation methodologies to be IAP2 certified, to understand the value, not just from the planning perspective, but uh, you know the other staff in the room too, to understand there's a different levels of appropriate engagement, I think, with the public at different parts in the process. And the strategic plan is the guiding document to implement Plan 2040, um, Transportation Plan 2040 and Plan 2040, the Comprehensive Land Use Plan, which has by de facto rolled in the bicycle and pedestrian plans. And so it's kind of twofold in the sense that the strategic plan commitment is to do engagement um, and in those in those processes, but it's also to implement those plans and the values that we heard from the public. And so thinking about um, you know, the process really kind of being broken because it really does require someone to get a have a high level of understanding and education about where we've been and kind of what priorities have been set as part of those plans, which have had more robust engagement that represents underrepresented people in the process than just putting out a call for projects, even on the website, that the tool 
probably isn't the right tool for that. And I think Charlie kind of identifies that well. And I think that sums up the internal conversation we've had. It's also feels inconsistent to the public. And I think this is probably some of the sentiment I think around what tra uh, Traffic Safety Commission used to be, which is somebody brings an item to you and there's not identified funding for it. And so it feels disingenuous. It's you, you maybe feel heard, but if there isn't a course of action to take to, um, you know, to move forward, even if you solicit project ideas and stuff, I think that it feels hard because you're just, you, then you've set people's expectations up that, hey, come tell us what you want. We're trying to work on this. But then if you can't deliver on those things, the communication of that is really hard that it's like you don't build trust in that process um, to do that. And so those are the some of the values. I'm not sure that answers any question, but I think it, it leads us to think about some of the values we've had. I'd also point out both our pedestrian and bikeway plans are far more robustly developed and in at least round two of, uh, you know, of revisions to them in the five-year cycle than when we started this process with the Bike Ped Issues Task Force um, and identifying some of those priority networks. So those, we've continued to evolve those processes. And I think Wherever you land on this, we'll continue to move forward and need to explore ideas about making sure that we can not only engage the community in soliciting their input, but also educating them on the course we've taken and the progress we've made to do this work. The bottom line is the community's expectations, again, that I've said it, I feel like are not being met for bicycle and pedestrian infrastructure based on the currently current um, level of investment for it. For infrastructure. You can tell that just by, you know, everybody has their specific project that would apply to them. And we're working on some high level community priorities to build connectivity and for vulnerable populations. But I think overall, the reality of it, it's going to take decades. And we talk about that in our plans, but I think that's hard for the public to understand because it doesn't meet their expectations. This is Commissioner Bryan. I've noticed on the city's website, the CIP page, it has the non-motorized motorized project prioritization policy listed as a bolded item under the CIP development process. And the other bold is the CIP prioritization guidelines. I'm assuming this bullet gets taken out. Is that yeah, that'd be correct. We okay. we added that bullet because of the call for projects. Okay. <clears throat> Personally, I think it's confusing that we have two different types of calls for projects, and I, I'd like to see either that be done very differently for our call for projects, because it feels essentially like it's redundant, like you would submit both to the CIP and then you'd also submit to us for the non-motorized projects. So I'm not sure why it needs to be both. It, you know, it could just be there's something in the CIP missing. Someone submits it and then it gets reviewed by staff if it gets into the list of projects. I think maybe the question is if the robust planning process doesn't um, account for the proposed project, what is the way the community can 
advocate for a project to be considered. Um, and I think there's you know two issues there. One is you got denied the first time through the robust planning process, or it's actually a new idea that maybe could be considered sooner than every five years. Feels to me like if it's already gone through a planning process and was considered not a high priority, then it needs to be kind of put on the sideline until that five-year process starts up again. But if it's entirely new, or there's some reason that it something causes us to, you know, we should really reconsider it because there's a new opportunity, maybe matching opportunity or something. It feels like it has to be more than just saying, hey, well, they didn't listen to me, so I'm gonna put it back in this way. And in that case, it feels like we're just creating a game that people can play, which doesn't feel sincere. So. Thank you, Mayak, MMTC Chair. Um, Charlie, I wanted to follow up on that thought that was, um, you said something like, if you know, if this robust planning process doesn't account for you know the particular project that is being put forward, then kind of what happens next? And that was one of the questions I I had when I was reading through the the agenda item, which was, geez, if I can find it again, it was that there were five of the citizen requested projects that were not already identified, and I was wondering like what's the nature of those projects? Are they things that wouldn't really fit into the into the program that we've set up or are they just on roads that aren't on any particular network? Like I know, for example, um, Michael had brought up last time or the time before the projects that Sustainability Action Network had put forth. And one of them was basically getting a street sweeper and an operator to make sure that bike lanes are actually clean. And that, that sounds like that would probably go on the fleet capital improvement program for the entire city. Um, whereas something like the green paint for the crossings, that's, that's not, it's not something you can score in the, in the way that we've uh, set up, but it still could end up being a capital improvement project for the city. So those are two very different, um, I guess, physical examples of, of things that are non-motorized transportation related, but don't really fit into the prioritization. So. Are the other projects kind of like that? Like they're related, but they don't fit? This is Jake Baldwin, engineering program manager. Uh, Chair, on that summary table, we, we've got a, a notes column and that really calls off um, kind of the, the reasoning behind not being included in a project list. So of those five on there, I believe, um, let's see, we've got two of them didn't align with, with our adopted plans. Um, one's on school property. Uh, one's not in the city limits, and we've got one. One's a future bike lane. One's an existing facility. So we, those are the the reasons those projects didn't get on there. And you'll see there's some some themes that run in that column as well. So, for example, um, let's see. There's this one that is the shared use path on Sixth Street from Tennessee to New Hampshire Street. So it is not currently in the project list, it's not in the bikes plan, so therefore because it does not align with the adopted plan, it's not recommended for inclusion. Um, that makes sense from a process standpoint. I'm kind of surprised that that, that actually isn't on the plan because it's a pretty well-traveled area and it's not exactly a safe street to be on, but that's another discussion for another day, I think. 
So but that's an example where the priority network takes you to Sixth Street, off of Sixth Street to Fifth Street to a bike proposed bike boulevard that would be lower volume, lower speed to make the same connection. So New Hampshire doesn't exist on Fifth Street, so this might be something else. This may be maybe taking you down Vermont and across Seventh uh, or something. Like I would assume that the bike network has you completely avoiding that that you know uh, kind of frenzy of an intersection at Sixth and the Bridges. I'm sorry, I guess I'm not, was, you're maybe right, I'm not. On this Commissioner Brian. So Nick, I think, I mean, just, I'm gonna basically say what Jessica said. We've been very specific about trying to avoid uh, putting bikes on 6th Street, mm -hmm. on that segment of 6th Street, by suggesting that they need to move over to 5th Street. And we need to make 5th Street more friendly for bicyclists. Yeah. So I think that's where the response is, that doesn't align. Like we have a plan and it doesn't, putting a shared use path on 6th Street right there is not aligned with the plan. It's actually counter to the plan. It's been considered and that idea has been, you know, not deemed as the best plan to get bikes along that area or that corridor, I guess. Right, and then there's Wisconsin. All right, so I guess just from a detail standpoint, East of Tennessee that goes over to New Hampshire Street, there isn't a fifth street. It's only seventh. So if I guess what I'm saying is if if that's where the priority bike lane is not, that's okay. I understand that. I just um when you come off the wayfinding sign. When you come off Fifth Street, you're gonna come on to controlled intersection. I guess the uh constant park. Let me just make sure. So it's it's been years since I lived there, but when you come in south on Tennessee Street, yeah, that's um if you're a bike, but it's gonna be pretty hard to cross Tennessee Street on sixth or cross sixth on Tennessee Street. So like if there isn't a shared use path between Tennessee and New Hampshire, you're either crossing at a uncontrolled intersection of six lanes of traffic, five lanes of traffic, or you're going east on the north side of sixth street. Granted, this is not the discussion that we're having here. I'm sorry I'm getting into this. It. It's, it's a route I've taken a lot of times, but um, yeah, I, I I think I I get the overarching theme, which is that if it's not on the plan, it doesn't really make sense to include it. Um, what I do think would be helpful though, is to, when we see these things that don't align with our plan, it'd be good to remind us why the plan is the way it is, like the conversation that we're having here. like. Okay, it, it seems intuitive when you're on the ground level, but there's an overarching reason why this is not something that we want to pursue. Um, and all the other ones make perfect sense. Like there's already something there. It's in the future bikeway. It's not in the city limits. It's on school property. I can understand that. Um, so I guess going back to kind of the, the larger discussions, sorry, I always tend to focus on the weeds here. So I'm trying to distill what commissioners Brian and Colette were saying as well as Jessica here. Um, it, it seems like, yeah, that there's the, there's got to be a better way is what, is, is what I, I'm getting. Um, there's got to be a better way to engage with, with citizens on projects that are helpful for alternative transportation. In some cases, I do believe the CIP is the best bet, but the problem with the CIP is that it is only projects for $100,000 or more. And it kind of takes some, some effort to actually understand how to cost a project. It's not trivial. I mean, there are people who that's their entire job is a cost estimator. So it's obviously not something that the average citizen could probably do and guess like, well, this is, you know, three and a half miles of 
bike lane, it's a million and a half, right? So it, it, it is an avenue for the big projects, but I think most citizens are probably not thinking on that scale anyway. Most citizens are probably thinking on the scale that East Lawrence was thinking of when they submitted the, the letter, which is something like, you know, we really need a crosswalk just right here, just a single crosswalk, or we would really like no parking signs on this street because we believe it's in conflict with how people drive their I don't know. I'm just kind of making up examples. But I guess what I'm getting at is that um, is that there there really isn't a, a spot for this kind of lower cost capital pro um, capital projects to be uh, routed through. And I don't know if now is the time to actually discuss this. I actually wanted to bring this up in commission items. But I do, I do think we should soon consider in the future what to do about the sort of small cap things, right? Like projects that aren't big enough to qualify for CIP, but are still important and maybe don't align perfectly with the bikeways and the pedestrian plan. Because I have a feeling there are some that would fall through the cracks like that. But like say, say somebody didn't want Green Haven for the whole city, but just wanted it on a couple of crossings in their neighborhood. I don't know where you'd put that. There's not really a spot for that right now. So it may be incumbent on us to start to have some creativity and figure out how, how can we do the citizen engagement um, while not overwhelming staff with redundant or non-relevant uh, requests. So I guess what I'm saying is overall, I, I do still support taking away the particular call for projects in this uh, CIP, but that comes with a strong condition that we continue to work on this um, on this issue. So. Anyway. This is Dave Cronin. I guess I would add what I'm hearing um, is, and in, in reference back to the Traffic Safety Commission, a lot of those requests that we got are, are more probably geared towards our neighborhood traffic management program. Yep. Those traffic calming requests, you mentioned no parking. We're kind of doing no parking administratively, but it could, you know, when, when we've, uh, through the pilot program, we've been doing that traffic calming project in the neighborhood, working with the neighborhood on that. Um, so that might be looking at that program and avenue to get feedback on lower cost projects. Because, um, yeah. because like, you know, th this is just building the network. This is we've we've got done the planning process. We've got identified routes and we've got limited funds and we want to put those to the priorities and if, and there obviously will still be public comment on those. Um, it's just won't be as, uh, you know, we won't do it as uh, with the CIP. It'll just be with, you know, we're presenting a five-year plan. And, and so if there's ways to get more comment on the five-year plan, maybe uh, we can talk about that. Um, but, uh, but I think, you know, the, the, the smaller things, uh, neighborhood requests would be better be uh, managed through the neighborhood traffic management program. Just Commissioner Brian, I, I wanted to also just point out like these requests, I think every one that I looked at was over $100,000. So I don't think this is this tool has been used for small items. It's been used for items that qualify for the CIP call for projects, which is again, why it feels really redundant. Mm. Um, yeah. I think I'm happy with the proposal in front of us. I think we also need to recognize that there's an interest by the public to be engaged and we have to still work on that. Yeah, this commissioner Baltuska, I think, oh, I'll just put out the idea, like why, why can't we just 
stop calling it a call for projects and just simply do like an annual publishing of the list. And mm -hmm. it's, it's just a survey for public input and feedback that's more targeted and specific to what the NMPPP is rather than, you know, just open call for projects. It's look at, look at the list and, uh, you know, submit your feedback, whether that's a project that's not on list or, mm -hmm. hey, I think this project is worth more than your point system. Uh, yes, Commissioner Bryan, we, we do that five, every year we review this five-year plan and use this policy to guide that. So yeah. it does seem like we, we are, there is a space annually for the, we don't have to call it a call for projects, but it could be a call for projects review or a call, right. something that kind of feels like an action oriented mm -hmm. um, request of the community, but give them, here's the scoring, we want feedback. Yeah. And we're looking for, uh, you know, some, some official response from the neighborhoods or from the citizens at large or advocacy organizations, because that's going to help us make the policy better, I assume, you know. So I feel like we do have a mechanism with the review of the five-year plan. Mm -hmm. And if we can use that feedback to help refine the policy continuously, like we have been, I think that should be good. Although I, I still think there is this yearning to be able to get some official opinion on matters. And that's what the Traffic Safety Commission kind of did. And people felt somehow, I think they felt affirmed when they would see their thing publicly acknowledged. And I don't know how, how, how to do something like that that is sincere it doesn't need to just be done for the sake of people being able to point their finger at it, but it needs to have, have some legitimacy. In case me, and then TC chair, oh, sorry, Dave, you were probably going to say something about this, but I really do like your idea about the, N the NTMP possibly being the conduit in the clearinghouse for this, because it kind of makes sense for these kind of small neighborhood level stuff that, you know, like a land or a neighborhood association would bring up. Um, I was hoping we could maybe get that on the agenda at some point soon to have kind of a like look at where we've been and where we're going with the NTMP because a lot of folks on the commission weren't here when it was started. So um, I don't know, just throwing that out there, but sorry, you're going to say something. Oh, yeah, uh, Dave Cronin, were you asking me, Nick? Yeah, were you going to say something before I cut you off? Oh, no, not, not anything in particular. Okay. <laughs> if if I was, I can't remember what what it was. <laughs> Sorry, I'm so, that with people. But no, I I agree with that, and I guess I guess um, with upcoming agenda items, that's on the agenda next month. Is that program? Is it okay? Um, so yeah, I guess we can check. I would that say later. that. Yeah, you're right. It is okay. That's a great time to bring that up. So yeah. Um, all those ideas I was having about this kind of small cap program and solicitation, I think you've kind of happened upon a potential solution here to use the NTMP to, I don't know, somehow be a platform. I don't know really how it's going to work out yet, but I think we can have a better discussion on that next month. So, um, okay. 
in terms of this particular agenda item, which we've, we've gotten really into the weeds on this call for projects, but I do think it's important. I mean, yeah, we may be removing it, but community engagement is a part of our, our work plan. So the fact that we're devoting so much airtime to it, I feel like does speak to the fact that we're still concerned. We still do want to hear people's thoughts. This just may not be the most efficient way to do it, you know? And I think what Jessica was saying about how we have these overriding plans that have been developed over years with a lot of public input, especially from people who don't often get to participate in the public planning process. Um, I think it is important that those stand because those same people probably won't be showing up to submit individual comments and projects on Lawrence Listens or at MTC meetings. So it's almost like, it kind of reminds me of sort of the land use planning process where we have, you know, plan 2040, but then individual decisions can happen around variances and, you know, very small scale things that are often kind of controlled by the folks who have the time and the energy to put into it, you know? So um, I can agree that having an overarching plan and trying to stick to it can be really helpful to make sure that those who had the voice maintain that voice. Okay, um, so I think it sounds like everybody who wanted to speak on that has. Um, do we have any other comments on the actual projects on um, and how they were uh, ranked or anything? Other than, I feel like a kid in a candy store looking at all these potential projects. I mean, once all these get built, it'd be so much easier to get around town on a bike. So I'm looking forward to, to pretty much all of these. And, and uh, this agenda item is really just looking at the policy revisions, not the actual list of projects. I uh, well, That was my understanding, at, at least. So the list of projects was provided because we had adjusted some stuff. Um, okay. So the addition of equity and, and based on priority networks and also safety and updating to align with the five-year plan. So I, I think, Jake, correct me if I'm wrong, but that, that may have reconfigured some of the rankings from last year. Is that right? Yeah, Jake Bolden, engineering program manager. That is correct. So the, the, some of the revisions we're talking about are changes to the scoring within the policy, and that's why we provided the project list. So you could see really what those changes are doing to the, the project list. So yeah, you, you can see if, if a, a certain project made a leapfrog or, or jumped certain other projects. Okay. Um, so I, I don't have any other questions. I, I, I'm personally fine with, um, I guess, approving this as is. Does anybody else have any additions? If not, I'd entertain a motion. This is Commissioner O'Brien. I move that we approve the revisions to the non-motorized projects prioritization policy. This is Commissioner Coyette, I second. Christina, can you call roll, please? Damon Baltuska? Yes. Karen Payton is absent. Pat Collette? Yes. Charlie Bryan? Yes. Nick Kuzmiak? Yes. Douglas Redding is absent. Althea Schnacki? Yes. Motion carries five to zero. Okay. Thank you. Michael, I'm sorry the public comment is currently closed for this item. Um, Trying to think of the, I'll give you two minutes to have any closing remarks because we did touch on your comment a lot. Is everybody else okay with that? Just a show of thumbs. Sure. Oh, okay. All right. 
Thank you, Chair Kuzmiak. I'll be very brief. I just, first of all, say this is an excellent discussion and I want to thank you all. Um, particularly Commissioner Bryan's emphasis that whatever kind of vehicle that you create in the future, that it be an official avenue for input and an official avenue for response. Um, and then the whole prioritization policy, as Mr. Baldwin pointed out, is to prioritize funding. So the flip side of the whole issue really that's governing all of this is that there's not enough money devoted to multimodal transportation. There needs to be more money devoted to it. The city budget right now is about 1% of the transportation funds for bicycle pedestrian. Um, transit gets about 25%, I think, but bicycle pedestrian, 1%. It used to be 0.8%. So is there any way the commission could bring that particular issue to the attention of the city commission to change that ratio, add more money, let's say 10, 10%, 5%, 15%, some figure and go for it. That would be my request. So thank you for your, your, your action on this. Appreciate it. Thank you for your comments. Nick Kuzmiak, MMTC Chair, we're going to move on to agenda item number three, which is receiving a presentation on the Lawrence Pedestrian Plan, the long-awaited, hotly anticipated LPP. <laughs> I'm excited. All right, Jessica Mortinger, Transportation Planning Manager. I have 100, no, I'm joking. I have 23 slides. I'm going to go through um, our couple hundred page plan. I'm going to try to talk high level about where we are. I will remind you that Nick Kuzmiak served on the Pedestrian Plan Steering Committee. Um, and so he served in the role of chair actually for that work. And we are very thankful for his involvement in this plan. Me figure out how it's going to let me go to the next page. Okay, um, we, the MPO Policy Board um, established a steering committee to guide the development of this plan. That was a really a two-part um, effort. One of staff advisors, so interdepartmental staff advisors that helped the MPO staff shape the work um, of the content that was print, present, uh, prevented, presented and developed um, for the consideration of the steering plan um, committee members. And so you can see who was involved in that process uh, starting in 2021. Um, and we had some robust discussions as we worked through the development of this plan, including thanks to the steering committee members, Althea, who also joined us that way. You can see her picture there. Um, you know, your board after her involvement on the pedestrian plan steering committee. But um, we even had steering committee members help us do tabling um, for public engagement, and that was really helpful. We began the process by bringing to the to that steering committee a list of work tasks that we felt um, had been identified in previous MMTC conversations and identified by staff as things that should be initiatives that this plan could hope to address and make sure that we document as part of that process. So the kind of long-term sidewalk net network um, vision 
um, identifying gaps that support bus uh, access, healthy food destinations and parks to be part of our priority network. Um, we took the opportunity to analyze the distribution of the sidewalk network to the transportation disadvantaged populations. We explored pedestrian oriented designs and elements of pedestrian crossing work. We didn't get as far as part of this plan um, as we wanted to in some of that, but we identified work that needs to be done. We recognize there's some there were some other ongoing initiatives, um, the sidewalk improvement program, the ADA transition plan for the public right away. Um, uh, the ADA implementation just around public facilities, the buildings. Um, there's an ongoing brick streets and sidewalk committee. And that those were things that we really were going to be outside of our scope, but we wanted to recognize in the planning. We also wanted to take the opportunity to evaluate national best practices for walkability. So we explored many of the profiles of other communities that are recognized by as part of the walk friendly communities program. We began this process, you can see with the, you don't have to necessarily read all this, but this laid out the framework for our plan. So we developed an existing conditions memo that really tracked the progress since the last pedestrian plan and from the PED Bike Issues Task Force report to understand where we were. We developed a process to identify issues and set priorities uh, with the community as part of our survey. So we did a public comment uh, not our public comment period, our survey process for engagement um, from October 20th to November 14th. We collected 550 surveys. Um, we tabled over 16 different times and attended seven meetings. That included things like Harvester's Food Distribution, where Just Food set up their mobile pantry, Lawrence Public Library, um, neighborhood or um, land meeting, um, or other opportunities like that, um, where we had to talk with people about the work we were doing and encourage them to provide us feedback um, on, on the survey. And all of the public comment we received is documented as part of the appendices, as well as displayed throughout the plan. And it was really some of those initiatives that we heard and in, in sharing that with the steering committee that led us in the direction we did. We really envisioned, you know, so you can see those um, those green boxes across there represent all the scope of work. Um, we had a final, we had a final plan to present for a 30-day public comment period, um, and now we're at our black part where we're looking for plan uh, plan approval. So. You know, this is probably the part of the list that you're most familiar with thinking about where we've been for um, the built environment improvements. This is the stuff that most people um, were excited to hear about when we put together the boards we showed uh, people at the tabling events. But we also have to recognize that even the Transportation Commission was established since the last pedestrian plan in the Ped Bike Issues Task Force report. We achieved silver level walk friendly community. We've had dedicated bicycle and pedestrian funding, the enforcement of the sidewalk improvement program, establishment and implementation of the neighborhood traffic management program, development and implementation of safe routes, um, improvement of the right-of-way management program and signal coordination and pedestrian timing updates. And so when we started to put that list together, it tells the story, I think, about the work and progress we've made in the last five years and sets the tone, I hope, for the future work that this plan can lay out and get us moving on the right track. This probably also should not be a surprise to you necessarily, but let's read off. Let's look at the top um, six barriers, five or six, five, five barriers that people identified in our community. You'll see some common themes here, and I think it plays out in some of the recommendations. Busy streets with no sidewalk. 
um, sidewalks in disrepair or tripping hazard, drivers not watching for yielding to people in crossing streets and driveways, gaps or no sidewalks and drivers going too fast. So we have driver behavior, sidewalk gaps, sidewalk condition. And I think that really plays out. Um, you can see there's, you know, the, the after those five, um, the kind of numbers drop pretty uh, sharply in terms of how people had indicated for second and third priority. But um, we really feel like the plan hopes to address some strategies to, to work on some of those things. Um, we asked the community overall about uh, how they felt about the 2016 vision and then um, what they would change or add. And this, this is a slightly modified vision. It um, addresses um, with a little more directness, um, ages and abilities and the use of assistive devices for accessibility and also um, dis discusses daily transportation and talks about equitable um, uh, transportation in that in terms of those those environments. And so um, this is the revised um, vision statement for the plan. The residents of Lawrence envision a community that invites people of all ages and abilities to travel on foot or with an assistive device for enjoyment, exercise, and daily transportation by providing an equitable, safe, accessible, convenient, and attractive pedestrian environment. And we know that really takes a multifaceted approach to get to. Oh, not too far. Okay. So I'm jumping to the end of the plan now just to show you at a really high level how we framed the five sections across our implementation recommendations for the plan. So if you'll just look at the blue level and then we're gonna walk through all the bullets um, that are included in for each part. But um, the first is building and maintaining a pedestrian network crossings. So thinking about comfortable crossings, uh, land use transportation and design, um, safety, comfort in the streetscape and evaluation. So as we think about um, implementation and the part of constructing the prioritized sidewalk gaps, um, that's part of that. So we show here in yellow the pedestrian priority network, which is arterial and collector streets, safe routes to school, and then gaps identified to support transit, food, and park access. Um, and under on top of that, um, the, those yellow sections, you can see the highlighted either in red or green are gap projects. Um, and we also added in blue some pending development of sidewalk projects that we uh, knew were happening as part of other CIP projects on the list to kind of show you where we're at in regards to that. So it's, it's over 40 miles of gaps just in the gap uh, network. We had the opportunity, like I said, to look at each, and this is, I'm showing you high level this, but if you dig into the plan, um, we'll, every block group um, had this type of analysis. So you can see, we looked at the, what you're seeing is in the red, yellow to red colors is the sidewalk to road percentages. So the more red or intense the color is, the less the, the ratio of sidewalks to roadways. So this really helps us identify where in our community there, the part, the neighborhoods that were developed when sidewalks were not a requirement um, of streets in the neighborhood. We partnered that data with minority block groups so we could look at disparity and also our transportation disadvantaged populations. So the blue scores on that on the right map um, in the plan kind of show where we have high transportation disadvantaged and also high, low ratio of sidewalk to roadways. Um, we were really hoping to be able to look in a block to block group fashion where we have the most disparity for people who have transportation challenges. Um, and in the 
in the appendices, you this is a, an example from Appendix C, and it's shown for every block group in the community, the sidewalk to roadway percentages for that neighborhood. Um, you can see the score. Um, and then what that would what their sidewalk to roadway percentages would be if all the for if all the gap projects were filled. So this kind of gives us an idea about if we would prioritize um, the infilling the gaps that we have identified, where we would be in terms of that. This is kind of a proxy for us to look at because um, obviously there could be some streets where it's sidewalks on both sides versus sidewalks. Um, just on one side versus no sides, but we felt like it was a, the best overall metric we had to really understand what's happening in our community in regards to disparity and distribution of sidewalk access and opportunity. Again, it doesn't consider sidewalk condition. It really just considers, is there at all a sidewalk there um, uh, or not? And so I think, you know, there could be additional work um, you know, where we've looked, you know, you we, you recall back to sidewalk improvement where we've prioritized some of those uh, disadvantaged block groups and weighted those. But this is really feeds the recommendation, um, the, the findings that we had around some of this disparity. I'm showing you the most significant transportation disadvantaged block group, but there's an extensive amount of work in here and analysis that really shows that by targeting the projects we've identified as the priority network, we can make a significant investment in, um, addressing some of the disparity that we see across our community in the sidewalk network. Um, in addition to building and maintaining the pedestrian network, again, we recognize the continued need to implement sidewalk impro improvement program and to evolve it as, as needed. I think you've heard me say a few times already um, from the comments we received that the invest the level of investment isn't meeting the citizen expectation i think for whether that be repair construction ada i think in a lot of ways there's so much need and um that's really apparent when you look at some of the timelines for talking about some of these elements uh, you'll see in a second when we talk about the pedestrian vision um, and then also the work that's planned for 2023, that's uh, some of the data collection and works underway already to develop and implement the ADA tr transition plan for the public right away. And we coordinated some of the 2020 city accessibility survey results from that targeted engagement to people um, with mobility challenges. And, um, you know, you can see some of the same comments here that they're going to work to address in the ADA transition plan for the public right away. We talk a little bit about, we took steering committee members out um, as we talk about some of the feedback we had gotten over time in regard to people um, who use maybe a mobility device or a wheelchair or a walker and not having enough time to cross at signalized intersections. In 2020, as part of signal coordination, MSO, um, updated the evaluated and ensured the crossing time standards uh, met um, the current standards as part of signal coordination at 47% of intersections and another 37 were planned for last year and this year. And you can kind of see that displayed on the map and we call for the need to finalize all the rest of the intersections also. But one of the things we really wanted to make sure that we understood is not just did they meet the standard, but were they meeting the expectation of people um, who use devices um, and so we took um, steering committee members and member of the community out, um, people who uh, use a wheelchair or a walker to experience the crossing timings um, and to actually, you know, count, look at the time it was supposed to be 
use the crossing, um, talk about how, if it felt comfortable or not, or met their expectations. And we were, we, um, we had, we had found that with the people we visited with, they, they felt that the crossing times were adequate. Um, again, the largest challenge we felt really was about uh, yielding drivers for right-hand turns. And so I think that um, some of that in our recommendations around yielding to pedestrians and some of the work that we recommend later really plays into that um, and that experience that we had going out and visiting some of these intersections um, that had been amended to understand are those crossing timings meeting the expectation um, of some of our community users. Um, crossings. This is one part of the plan where we really, during public engagement, ask people to submit um, their intersections of concern. And there are uh, 147 unique unsignalized intersections across the community that were identified. And um, again, this, you know, that's a call for projects you can see. Uh, we put in here, kind of evaluated it based on the pedestrian model, how many, what we thought of for potential crossings as we were starting to think about how to prioritize these for different improvements. And we really realized that like um, some of the work that you've identified, the need to adopt standards to identify appropriate crossing treatments and improvements um, really almost needed to happen in a way that we could filter and begin to evaluate how we want to prioritize some of these crossings. And we needed to do additional work on this that wasn't going to fit within the timeline of the project. And so we were hoping to do more here and it didn't happen. So we really tried to lay out some specific um, recommendations around identifying crossings for evaluation and hopefully including them in future non-motorized prior project prioritization lists but also recognizing the need to incorporate pedestrian crossing improvements in ro roadway reconstruction and major street maintenance projects um, in a way that we identified opportunities for things like daylighting or bulb outs um, that really could advance some of these issues because they are really across our community. And a few one-off projects added to the non-motorized list is really at that rate, not gonna make a significant investment unless we think more holistically about our streets. And so we kind of ended up in those places with the recommendations and we feel like this is a really going to be a key component besides, um, you know, maintenance and gap infill that's going to impact the walkability of our community. Um, again, partnered with some of the call for enforcement. Um, this shouldn't, these are some additional things as we get into transportation um, and design, land use and design. Um, after we get past the crossing section to think about street classification design standards and pedestrian facilities besides sidewalks. We asked in our survey about advisory shoulders and yield roadways. And I've included here kind of the context for how people felt comfortable in, in regards to these because many local streets are currently serving as undesignated yield roadways where there is no sidewalk environment. There is a shared street environment. You can see the center picture is in North Lawrence. Um, it's a Google street photo that shows basically what's happening, which is shared street environments. And there wasn't, you can see there wasn't um, a lot of comfort with those. Um, and I think that plays a lot of that, um, the feedback we got in that section was a lot about driver behavior, whether that be speed or failure to yield um, at crossings and, and that sort. And so I think we, we recognize that even though this is happening informally, there's a large need to do um, education and enforcement around failure to yield and um, for safety of our neighborhood streets. 
Again, we recognize there's ongoing work around brick and we call for the need to establish some brick sidewalk standards to continue to advance the sidewalk improvement program or reconstruction program that begins to occur in regards to brick sidewalks. Um, this slide, it's all text, it's nothing super pretty. But um, what I hope it conveys is really the need to consider elevating the pedestrian experience as part of the land development code update. And we call through that really in four tenets of ways to do that in terms of pedestrian scale and pedestrian oriented development, um, planning and constructing connective road patterns. So thinking about pedestrian access and trip distances, um, denser residential and commercial construction, thinking about mixed use and other ways that we can shorten trip distances and put more people in a place to make walking attractive options, and then um, incentivizing development within the city. And so we called out some very specific things, and I hope whether that's through your involvement and or um, the steering committee's involvement in the land development code, we can address some of those issues and they'll be in an approved pedestrian plan to help provide guidance to that process. Um, we also hope to develop to incorporate the long-term sidewalk vision into the development code. And let's talk a little more about that. We asked the public about their expectations. You can see on the chart on the left, starting at new major streets, existing major streets, uh, new collector, existing collector, neighborhood. And, and we gave street examples because we kind of asked people. And you can see the higher classification of street, the higher the expectation that sidewalks are on, on both sides. But you can see even down into neighborhoods, there's a very high expectation that even on existing streets, neighborhood streets, that there's sidewalks on both sides sides. So we wanted to look at what the feasibility of that is um, and talk about that at the level that we're currently filling sidewalk gaps. Um, you look at your per year kind of commitment to funding um, and this won't happen within our lifetimes. Um, and so I think you know, as we think about where do we put the highest priority and the highest value um, in some of this, this isn't even considering new streets. This is what we are we are dealt with in terms of what are we looking at to build sidewalks on all sides of arterials and collectors and one side of local at the current investment level, it's 143 years, still not happening in our lifetime. We saw that that's where we saw kind of in the neighborhood street category, you can kind of see between new and existing, you see the variation um, in from both sides to one side kind of uh, adjust the most in regards to that. Um, partnered with some of the other efforts for slow streets and education, we felt comfortable recommending a vision for sidewalk on both sides of collector and arterial, new and existing, and both sides of new local streets and only one side of existing local streets. And so um, that's the kind of vision, the long-term vision we have for the sidewalk network, which will require when it's incorporated in the land development code, some additional consideration about how to select um, wh where sidewalk is chosen on existing local streets. So if we look at safety, comfort in the streetscape, this has this section kind of has the most components um, that, that fit into this, but we were really trying to think about placemaking, comfort, and safety. And the first at the top of that list is really the need to educate and enforce about traffic laws and the reestablishment of the traffic enforcement unit with the Lawrence Police Department. 
We also recognize the partnership and the work that the Neighborhood Traffic Management Program has done to elevate enforcement of speeding and failure to yield, and we feel like that should continue. We additionally covered some examples of enforcement we found um, that was targeted to failure to yield, and there's a few examples um, where they very uh, reasonably increased the yield rates by doing some targeted um, engagement um, and publicizing their, their enforcement of failure to yield for pedestrian enforcement of failure to yield. And so we would recommend a really strategic program that targeted um, yielding um, as part of future consideration about how people move in neighborhoods um, and find opportunities to do that. But also whether that's with traffic enforcement or neighborhood traffic management, additional work has to be done around driver behavior um, to, to improve the expectation, I think the public expectation of um, the safe culture in our community. Um, we heard we heard a little bit and we recognize um, the need to maybe review and update regulations to clarify the conflicting users of the sidewalk. I think the multimodal um, or the, the micro mobility, excuse me, uh, subcommittee kind of touched on some of this and some work they did to recognize all the different scooters and bikes um, and skateboards uh, that operate in different operating environments based on some different conditions. And there may be some more need to clarify where, what belongs on the sidewalk and or shared use path and what doesn't and under what conditions um, in terms of speed um, and or where there may be conflict points. So we really feel like there could be some work done there. Um, we felt after conversation, the need to recommend reestablishing the, fatal, the fatal, uh, fatality crash investigation um, to use crash uh, data for geometric improvements and projects, MSO and uh, Lawrence Police have worked together and uh, in in separate approaches over time to do some of this. There are examples of highway safety uh, improvement projects, and we would just really encourage the identification and use of data to elevate um, the places where geometric improvements can improve safety. Um, we explored in some of our national best practices and even our neighboring Kansas City, um, the consideration to implement pedestrian legal frameworks to decriminalize walking, thinking about jaywalking and anti-harassment laws to really create safe culture around walking. And so those are things we would consider um, that should be uh, elevated in consideration for equity and uh, safety. Um, again, we have these are these are kind of our placemaking and comfort elements. Thinking about um, street tree and lighting policies um, to implement to continue implementing those to improve comfort enforcement of winter weather policies, block driveway and brush clearing. These things are these things make impacts on people's ability to move in their communities. Um, and then the implementation of transit amenities as placemaking. And we've included some examples of stuff that's being rolled out and transit re transits recent grant um, awards are going to make this these types of improvements even more possible. So we're excited about that and the work that, that they are doing. But you can see this really kind of gets, I think, you know, at a high level to it's not just about having stuff. It's also about how you maintain it and how it functionally operates. Um, and they're all important components um, of walkability. Um, when we get to the evaluation um, framework, we chose five performance measures um, based on kind of a data available to us. There was some interest in some other data around um, 
ticketing and stuff that wasn't, we didn't feel like was robust enough data to include yet, but we'll continue to, I think in the future as we look at transportation planning um, to consider some of that work as part of some of the program approaches. Um, so what we've included in here is PM2 from the current transportation 2040, which is the percentage of public streets with sidewalk on at least one side. You can see the investment that's been made since 2017. Um, CC, that's connected city five from the strategic plan. Um, and so we pulled that measure in. It's percent of sidewalk or shared use path in compliance with ADA, um, our deflection minimum standards. And that is at 20%. And that's from the, the strategic plan process. Um, we looked at the pedestrian priority network and we broke it down by classification in here, but what I'm showing in the plan, but here you can see it's 49.4 miles of gaps. Um, that's projects that we've ish, we've identified in segments on the, um, the maps you see with the others, the, the red and green lines and previous maps as part of those priority networks based on that vision for two sides on arterial and collector and one side or continuous sections maybe in in some of those regards on the other networks. Um, here you'll see PM13 and PM26, both from T2040, number of non-motorized fatalities and serious injuries. Again, this includes bike ped together. Um, and so that's, that's how it's tracked as a national performance measure. Um, and so additional, you know, understanding and through some of the crash understanding will have to lead us to um, understanding kind of some where that geometric and improvements or education and enforcement come in to target some of that, those crashes, additional analysis. Um, and then PM26, the percentage of pedestrian mode choice, which in 2019 was at 5.4 or 5.9, excuse me. Um, we have, we, through the public uh, comment process. We had a meeting with the steering committee and they agreed to release the plan for a 30-day public comment period. I have included on the agenda um, the link of the comments we received, our staff response and the action. Um, we then took this document um, back to the steering committee um, and reviewed the comment and the action um, with them and as a result made uh, a few small changes uh, to the action that we took in the plan. But you can see this comment that we received um, and the letter of support um, from the built environment um, work group uh, as part of the public comment period. And that's for your consideration. I'd be happy to dive into any of that in more detail if anybody wants uh, to talk about that, but I'd be happy also to entertain any questions about the process or throw Nick out there for conversations or comments he may have about, uh, or Althea for that matter, um, uh, about the, the process and um, where we ended up in the planning document. Excuse me, I come in TC chair. Um, all right, so first it goes without saying that this is a huge effort. So thank you very much to Jessica and I guess formerly Ashley for the uh, for at least a little bit um, for getting this whole thing together and for uh, shepherding the steering committee. I think you'll find if you've had a chance to read through it kind of in detail, there's some particularly interesting things in here that I'm not entirely sure the city's ever had in writing before. So as uh, somebody who's, I would say, pretty passionate about non-motorized transportation, it's um it's really nice to see it. So I don't know if you caught as she was going through, but you know, for example, there are actual recommendations on improving land use to enable a walkable community. Um, and we did have somebody from the Planning Commission on the steering committee. So 
that was, I guess, tacitly approved. But it'll be interesting to see how this is actually incorporated into the land use development plan because now there's recommendations coming from a lot of sides to kind of change things up. Um, I particularly like the recommendation to investigate pedestrian fatalities with an MSO. I've, I've kind of thrown that, that around as an idea for something that MMTC could get involved in. I don't know if that's possible, but I do feel like the, 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 they're such rare and dramatic events that it it might help to kind of use them as learning tools and see, you know, yeah, it was a tragedy. Can we make sure that the circumstances led to this tragedy maybe are prevented or mitigated in the future? I also think the, the, um, the emphasis on enforcement was quite interesting as well, um, both on the driving side and on the lighter enforcement of, of um, jaywalking, for example. So I think it's interesting that we're, you know, basically MPO has attacked us from all angles. So it's not just about sidewalks, it's about where the sidewalks go, what they connect, who's on them and how they're able to use them. So um, I did have a quick question for you, Jessica. I've unfortunately I hadn't had a chance to read over all the comments from the comment period yet. I was wondering if anything kind of really stuck out to you as something that was either a surprising blindside or just a really insightful comment that you remember from the public during that. Yeah, I'm always I'm always interested um, to see what people say once we give them something um, quite dense, right? Because we are asking a lot of people when they uh, comment in a 30 day public comment period on a document. Um, and we had some community members who I felt were very thorough and respectful to the process that we had been through. And um, as a staff, I hope that we can find a balance both between being visionary and also realistic. So I think there is a challenge in finding where that line is when we develop any plan in recognizing these, these things aren't going to change overnight and we have to make progress. And so I hope that our starting point of evaluating where we had been already from the previous plan and from the Pet Bike Issues Task Force report really set the tone for the fact that many of the things that were in those plans we have worked on or made progress on in the last five years. And so um, the thing that always um, makes me question just as staff, did we do we do enough? Is this the right um, tone? Is this the right sentiment is to, to find that balance? And so um, we always, I, so sometimes that, that criticism of, you know, seeing the things as a wish list, I think feels just internally challenging because I think these issues are challenging. And I hope that what we put together is a good list um, of things that we can begin to make progress on. So that's probably what I would say in regards to that. Um, of course, there's there's always opportunities to reflect. And um, I think, you know, having this as part of the record too, when we get into some of these issues in terms of understanding um, the, the public sentiment um, of where we landed is helpful. Um, and we're gonna, these are all gonna be, have to be separate additional conversations. I think it's not gonna change anything overnight. Um, adopting a plan, this is a lot of additional work that the community is gonna have to do. And it's not just all planning, it's, it belongs in a lot of different places. Thanks for the explanation. That does help to kind of keep it all in, all in context, Irina. Um, I was also curious about the planning commission's 
involvement. So I assume they don't have to directly approve this, but since it will be rolled up into plan 2040, are they kind of tacitly signing off that their planning decisions are going to have to conform to this as well? So the plan approval process works like this for MPO documents typically. Um, the MPO policy board is a separate legal entity. It's not the city and it's not the county. They have their own legal authority. Um, and so they have a technical advisory committee um, and that everything before it goes to the MPO policy board goes to the technical advisory committee. So traditionally we take things to the technical advisory committee and then the MPO policy board for adoption. All of the mode specific plans do roll up into the with the, what will be the new transportation 2050 long range transportation plan, which when we get to the phase of adopting that plan, we do so by resolution with consideration for the plant from the planning commission because that transportation 2050 like transportation 2040 our community has decided to codify it or as part of um, or to recognize it in adoption as part of plan 2040, which will then probably amend that chapter of plan 2040 based on the context. So there is a process where they do evaluate um, that down in trajectory. Additionally, there are two planning commissioners that serve on the MPO policy board. Um, and so they will be aware and involved in that conversation and process as we go through this process. So that's the MPO process. Separately, often we take our mode specific plans to the relevant city that we're working on. So this Lawrence plan comes to you for consideration um, of your recommendation for approval um, before as we go through that process with the MPO um, would go to the city commission after it goes to the MPO um, for their consideration. Um, and so Traditionally, they have accepted or adopted depending on the context um, of the plans. We uh, try to get them to adopt, sometimes they accept. So it's at their discretion um, when we embroach on that topic to, for them to decide how they want to adopt the plan. The reality is once the MPO adopts the plan, it is the regionally adopted plan. So from the federal perspective and our state partners perspective, it is the adopted plan plan because the MPO is recognized as the regional planning body. Okay, thank you for the explanation. That is, um, it's a bit of a complicated process, but it does make sense. <laughs> it's, I had kind of assumed a couple of those uh, steps. All right, I want to make sure that people have a chance to comment on this. Hopefully you'll have a chance to read through it. Um, any specific comments, questions, clarifications? Or should we turn it over to public comment for right now? I think I'm going to do that. Is there any member of the public who wishes to provide a comment, either in person or on the phone? Janet Majeur, you got three minutes. Uh, you're on mute, by the way. <clears throat> there we go. Um... I live at 646 Ohio, and I thank the staff for a lot of very hard work, but as a longtime resident, it's frustrating, and as Jessica alluded to, uh, the trying to balance the wish list versus the reality, and um, given the paltry funding for these pedestrian resources um, 
And I realize it's not a political plan, but it seems like it would be worthwhile for the plan to emphasize, if that's possible, much more strongly the need for more money. Um, I did mention to, uh, I think, Jessica and Nick, an article I read, and it's alluded to just very briefly in the plan about a program that's in use in Los Angeles and some other places whereby um, transfer of deeds cannot occur on properties without the city checking off on the quality of the sidewalks. And given the state of the real estate market and the really crummy state of the sidewalks, I would be really pleased if the plan stated a little bit more specifically that this was a funding mechanism that has worked elsewhere that we need to look into. Um, so that's my number one comment. I'm also a little frustrated with the uh, reference to the brick sidewalks committee. As far as I can tell, um, they haven't met, they haven't done anything. It's been that way for a really long time. So if it's really not a thing, I think that should be acknowledged and need to come up with a different plan because in fact, in the, in the proposed plan, many of the um, images in there are of bad brick sidewalks, but the plan doesn't address them. It, it just says, well, somebody else is dealing with that, but they are, are not. Um, so I would love to see the plan. I don't, e I don't even know if it's within your purview to make modifications at this stage, but if you would, um, or if you can, please do. Thank you. Thank you, Uzmiak, MMTC Chair. Are there any other members of the public who wish to provide a comment? Okay, well, that will bring it back up to the Commission and see what other people have to think about it. Well, Yes, that's it. Uh, <laughs> this is Commissioner Bryan. I feel like you guys always uh, expect me to start this, so <laughs> I will continue the tradition. <laughs> um, I first want to just reiterate what was uh, said by Nick. I mean, this is an amazing amount of work, and we really appreciate the work the staff of the MPO have done and the uh, other members of the city staff that served on the advisory committee. Thank you for all that. Um, work and then for the people that were on the steering committee as well. I, I'm especially um, pleased to see the inclusion of the discussion of crossing improvements. I think over the years we've consistently heard from the public the concern around street crossings and we're moving in that direction now and I think this further uh, kind of solidifies the data that we're going to have around the need to think about crossing safety. Uh, so that's a really positive step in my opinion. Um, I mean, 
pleased to see the inclusion of the suggestion that we have a multimodal wayfinding plan for the city. There's been discussion kind of over the years about something like that, but I've not seen much uh, effort um, or anything materialized from that. So I would love to see something like that happen. I think it would help the public uh, understand, you know, how much time it takes to get from one place to another if they want to walk. I think it'd be interesting to look at that by all modes as suggested in the plan. If it takes you 10 minutes to bike there, uh, 20 minutes to walk, three minutes to take the bus, you know, that information could help you decide how you want to get around the, the community. So I suppose we might have to give equal weight to the people on in a car, <laughs> how long would it take them to get there? Uh, but I think primarily that's for people that are on foot or trying to get themselves around without a car. So to me, those would be the things to prioritize in such a plan. Um, the pedestrian oriented development section was also uh, nice to see, especially given the work that will be soon underway with uh, the land use codes. Um, I'm a bit skeptical. I think that a lot of the work over the years has alluded to the need to be more pedestrian oriented in our in our land use work. And I'm waiting to see like if people have the political will to make that happen. So, um, but it's nice to have the materials in the plan, at least making the case, the strong case for a pedestrian oriented development pattern. Um, I think that's all I have for now. Yeah, I agree that a lot of the information in here is, I don't know, I feel like, you know, I'm an, I'm an environmental engineer in my day-to-day -day job, but one of my passions is just, you know, really nerding out around land use and planning and transportation. That's kind of why I'm on this mission. And I've been reading a lot about these various, you know, connections and I wouldn't say the literature because they're not like peer reviewed papers, but you know, around the web, right? So these general ideas about you need to have better land use, you need to have better, you know, enforcement of drivers and their bad behavior. It's kind of been around for a while, but it's really nice to have it written down so we can point to it when actually making decisions. So that's kind of the, the innovation here, I think. I'm all for it. Um, Athea, you were on the steering committee as well. Do you have any final thoughts at the end of this long process? It's been about six months from start to finish, right? I think nine months, actually. Um, this is a really good start to more detailed conversations to have this overarching vision for the city and county. And then we can get into the nitpickier stuff later with things like brick sidewalks, because that is an issue. You know, ADA compliance on curbs and things like that to get the overall vision actually put down the papers nice. And this is Commissioner Collette. I, I agree with those comments. I, I was particularly happy to see the, the um, intersection crossing um, uh, safety aspects as well as an uh, emphasis on enforcement and, um, you know, including that with the, with the um, 
enforcement of yield or you know targeted to yield because you saw that a lot in the public comments in terms of you know what what made uh, walking the most dangerous and that was right up there at the top and I think um, you know anyone who walks has experienced that so I, I appreciated that along with all of the you know very comprehensive plan uh, in terms of existing conditions and and uh, and performance measures as we as we go forward. So I think that really ties in nicely to what we've been talking about with you know a, a comprehensive perform or a performance uh, measurement across all modes. Yeah, this is Commissioner Baltuska, and thanks again to the whole team that put this together. Uh, great, great document. I'm all almost all the way through. I still have ways to go, but uh, yeah, so far, excellent. Thank you so much. Um, uh, really happy to see uh, the emphasis on decriminalizing walking. I'm so happy to see that in this official document. I think that's a great idea. And I'm also happy that on the flip side of that coin, that's, yeah, the enforcement and education should be focused on the most dangerous activity, which are the people driving around in the large vehicles. So I also appreciate, um, you know, the emphasis on that other side of that coin. Um, and yeah, I mean, the lack of funding issue, I think ties into all of the above. Um, you know, it's hard to see uh, failure to yield being an education problem. Um, I don't know if I'm optimistic enough to, you know, think that could be solved with education. I think it's it's all tied into funding, you know, until we get the infrastructure to where walking and biking is not stigmatized as a transportation point or, uh, you know, choice. I think that's when that behavior starts to really flip. Um, and yeah, those are all my thoughts for the time being. Who's me, I'm MTC Chair. Well, um, I'm hearing pretty much only positive reviews, so I think at this point it's probably time for a motion um, to get this thing approved. Unless there are any other final comments. It's Commissioner Collette, I make a, uh, a motion to approve the Lawrence Pedestrian Plan as presented. Yeah, Commissioner Schnocky, I'll second. All right, thank you. Uh, Christina, can you call roll, please? Yes. Damon Beltuska? Yes. Aaron Payton is absent. Pat Collette? Yes. Charlie Bryan? Yes. Nick Kuzmiak? Yes. Douglas Redding is absent. Althea Schnacky? Yes. Motion carries five to zero. Sounds good. All right, that is the end of our, our regularly scheduled agenda. And now we're moving on to staff items where we will be receiving an update on recommended adult crossing guard locations. Um, I just wanted to point out, this seems like something that should be a regular agenda item, but I'll be, I'm open to suggestions as to why this would be a staff item instead. This is Dave Cronin. I'm, Dustin's gonna present this. Um, this is uh, the first year we've done this new evaluation since we approved the uh, policy last year. And uh, the the um, policy, the recommendations go to the city commission. So we didn't have it as a, 
approval or a recommendation under under the regular agenda, but did want to give you an update that we did follow the policy and, and Dustin's going to present that information. Hi. Good evening. Uh, good to see some of you in person again. It's been a while. So uh, uh, we recently completed our uh, evaluation of the adult crossing guard locations for this year and uh, going to run through the results with you. Um, so we started off with the existing crossing guard locations uh, that were required to be evaluated per the school area traffic control policy. Uh, the first one, Clinton Parkway in Inverness, uh, was a pilot guard location this year. Um, it was uh, part of the previous evaluation, did not meet um, the warrant criteria to have a guard based on actual counts, but did meet the warrants based on potential crossings. And so we did the pilot guard this year and did the counts with the guard in place and it does meet the warrants now. So we'll be uh, recommending to maintain that location. Uh, next location was 23rd and Osdall. This one was also evaluated with the previous round of evaluations and uh, just barely did not meet the threshold. Uh, so it was in uh, above the 80% criteria. So we maintained it and then reevaluated this year. And it does meet the uh, warrant criteria this year. So we'll be uh, maintaining this location also. 23rd and Harper was a uh, temporary relocation from a uh, previous guard location was at Harper and Davis, but due to the uh, school boundary revision with uh, uh, Kennedy students now uh, going to Prairie Park, we wanted to, to move this guard down the road to uh, facilitate crossing 23rd Street for those students and uh, counted this location with the garden place this year and did not meet the warrant criteria. So we would uh, recommend removing this location. And then 6th in Mississippi was uh, also a location that has a guard, was evaluated with the last go round and uh, did meet the threshold last uh, evaluation. But then uh, this year when we counted again, it did not meet uh, the warrant criteria. So we'd recommend to remove this location as well. And I apologize, I need to uh, correct part of the, the memo here. I uh, omitted three additional locations with current guards that we evaluated this year, um, but they all met warrants. So these these are all in the table, but I, again, neglected to, to have them in the, in the text here. So those locations that were current guards evaluated this year as part of the periodic evaluation and all three of these locations meet warrants. We'll have the guard maintained. It's 19th in Vermont, 27th in Louisiana, and Harvard and Crestline. And then we can move on. There's one additional existing location that was uh, for the criteria should have been evaluated this year, but we uh, kind of have a have a major construction project going on there right now, so we. Uh, decided we should wait until that construction is complete because our 19th Street construction is actually going to add sidewalk on uh, north side of the street, east of Harper, uh, shared use path on the south side, east of Harper, and then fill in the sidewalk gap 
between Harper and Haskell on the south side. So uh, um, nice pedestrian improvements there. So we, we decided to wait and reevaluate this location uh, after that construction is complete. And moving on to uh, kind of the next section of the school area traffic control policy, uh, we added a, um, a provision to uh, allow the public to request new crossing guard locations and, and then the uh, criteria that those requests would be evaluated. So we, we had the survey open to uh, have those requests for new locations and we received 47 requests. Um, several of those were duplicates after uh, kind of compiling the duplicates, we ended up with 20 unique locations and then uh, filtered those out uh, based on, again, the criteria in the school area traffic control policy. So of the 20 unique locations, four were eliminated uh, because they were not on uh, safe routes to school, which is part of the policy. Uh, eight additional locations were eliminated because uh, they, they had been evaluated with the previous uh, round of um, evaluations back in 2020. And, and part of the policy says we, we would only look at uh, requested locations once every five years. And then uh, three additional locations were um, eliminated because they, they were actually locations that currently have a guard already. So that leaves us with five uh, new requested locations. And so per the policy, uh, the locations that, that don't currently have a guard but have a request, um, we eval evaluate those based on potential crossings from the pedestrian model. And of the five uh, locations that we evaluated based on potential, uh, three of those five met warrants, and those are Inverness and Sunflower Park Place, which is the roundabout right in, fr in front of Sunflower School, um, Inverness and 27th Street, uh, just slightly south of there, and then Inverness and Cedar Ridge Court, which is just east of uh, Quail Run. And then two of the five new locations did not meet warrants based on potential crossings. And there was 12th and Stone Meadows Drive and 27th and Lake Spur Circle. I think um, that was all uh, that I had in the memo to cover. So I'll uh, take any questions you have. Thank you, Dustin. Ted Kuzmiak, I'm the TC chair. So looks like the tally when all is said and done is that there were 16 two were cut based on not meeting the warrant and out of the 20 new ones that were requested, three did meet the warrant. So it's basically a loss of two, but a gain of three. So, um, and that'll increase the budget 5,100. So is it fair to say that the, the cost or the annual cost of placing an adult crossing guard somewhere is basically $5,100 or is that a little bit too simplistic? That That is a number with intelligence behind it. That's. Um... And, and Brad Harrell is on the line. He's he uh, manages the crossing guard program, and he uh, that was the number we uh, um, came up with uh, last year when we were uh, making the recommendation for the locations to the city commission. Okay, and um, compared to, um, geez, I'm trying to remember when this came before us so the last time. Was it late 2020, perhaps, where there was um, 
the, I guess, original number of crossing guard locations was whittled down by a little bit, and that saved maybe $10,000 in the overall budget. Compared with that budget, are we still below where we were when we started this discussion at MMTC? Um, I, I believe we're well below uh, where we were when we started the uh, evaluation process, but I'll, I'll definitely let Brad uh, jump in if he, if he needs to correct me. That That is correct. Uh, Brad Harrell, uh, parking supervisor. Um, I believe we're right around 60 uh, comparative to when we were at 117. Thanks, Brad. That gives me like MMTC chair. So that, that brings up a question that is sort of gets to the crew of why I was hoping this to be a regular agenda item. And that's that when we were first presented with this, there was an idea that it was going to be reducing the budget. And I thought, oh, it's nice to reduce the budget. But then I realized it was actually more to change what the criteria were to select which which um, crossings were going to get adult crossing guards, which also makes sense. But that's not the, the impression I'd additionally got from the from the agenda item. So I guess what I'm saying is there was a there, there was a reduction in budget from if I remember what you just said, like 115 to 60,000 or something. Um, I guess just to hear from you, was there a particular motivation for cutting that budget? Did it have to go somewhere else? Were there less parking receipts coming in? Um, this is Brad Harrell, parking supervisor. Um, the, the intention of this was not to cut the budget. Um, the intention of this was to just make sure we are allocating our resources um, at school crossing guards to the best of our ability. Um, as um, I believe it's well documented, we've had extreme staffing issues with trying to um, manage that number of part-time employees across many different um, you know intersections throughout our community and um, there just been no evaluation up until the point when we started really diving into this in 2020 and so a lot of these positions once they got a guard there was a guard there for forever um, and so the idea behind this was like i said not to cut a budget more aligns just to make sure that we are uh, utilizing you know um, the, the general fund dollars for the school crossing guard program um, in, in the best available positions and the most warranted uh, crossings in our community. Okay, thank you for the explanation. Um, so it, it sounds like if I'm hearing you right, that it's not so much that there was a budget crunch, it's that there is a people crunch, that even if you had the money, it would be hard to hire the people to do the job. Is that correct? Uh, this is Brad Harrell, parking supervisor. Uh, yes, that is correct. Um, uh, when um, school crossing, when we do not have a guard or there is a call in for a position, um, this is something that is um, filled by the uh, parking staff, um, City of Lawrence parking staff. Um, so there's um, budget impacts for my division uh, when it comes to uh, paying overtime for early um, early crossings and different things along those lines, but just trying to um, retain any type of help for an extended period of time has been very difficult. Now uh, we have a, a great group of, of, of employees for um, crossing guards that have been doing this for a long time, but as um, as some of these folks begin to retire, it's been very, very hard to fill those positions. I'm assuming just because of the difficult split schedule um, and, and then the change on, on early release on Wednesdays. Okay. Um, that definitely helps with my understanding. So. Sorry, I realize we're getting like way into the weeds with this being a staff item, but this is the first time I feel like we've really had a discussion on the, the budget um, implications here. So 
now that we're talking about this, if if there wasn't necessarily a budgetary reason to cut crosswalks, but there was a people reason and retaining and recruiting has been difficult, is there a possibility to go back up to the original budget number, but pay the crossing guards more, but maybe leave like $10,000 or $20,000 worth of wiggle room such that you might be able to retain people easier with higher pay, but then also recruit maybe the last two to fill the rest of those, those spots that are like almost at the warrant, but not quite. Oh, the only reason I'm asking, I realize this is a difficult lift, but I feel like the only public feedback I've seen around this has been largely negative. And I understand that doesn't necessarily come from a place of data analysis. It comes from a very personal, personal place of saying, my kid walks on this route, and I think it's unsafe that this exact intersection that I know very well is unguarded. And I can't believe you would take this away. This, you know, this affects my kid. So it's really tricky to separate the personally motivated negative feedback from those who've actually read the data analysis and understand it. But I think what really struck a chord with me was hearing people saying, why did they cut the budget if they didn't need to? And now there are less crossing guards. That doesn't make any sense to me. So I'm really glad that you explained that it's a staffing issue. It's not just a budget issue. So that does help explain kind of what's going on. But I guess I'll just pose that question to you. If the budget were available, would you be able to, to increase the pay of existing crossing guards in the hopes of attracting two or three more? Um, this is Brad Harrell, parking supervisor. I'm certainly in favor of, you know, um, allocating funds to um, support our crossing guards and maybe encourage more employment in this position. Um, how, however, I, I just want to, you know, revert back to um, the the policy that we created for adult crossing guards and, and meeting our warrants. And, you know, I, I hope that we can continue to evaluate many other crossings at, as we did this year. Um, and try to, you know, um, identify these areas that maybe historically have never had a crossing guard that have worn at a crossing guard for years that we were just not aware of. And I think under our new policy and and the great work that came from, um, you know, from our transportation team in, in building this policy, I think it puts us in a position to continue to evaluate these different crossings and make sure that the ones that do meet our warrants have crossing guards in the future. So, um, you know, to refer back to your question about uh, the pay of the guards, um, we, you know, it, it, I, I think it's a little bit more instead of just being the pay because I feel like, um, you know, comparatively to other municipalities, our, our pay is 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 right up there with some of the best pay for crossing guards, uh, but it's just sh such a short time. You know, they it's a, it's an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening. And, um, you know, un unfortunately, that just doesn't rack up to that many hours at the end of the week. And so um, I, I understand that, you know, that a little bit more money might help motivate. Um, but but a lot of it comes back to just finding the correct, you know, um, type of person that is willing to take on this position because it is, you know, it is the first thing in the morning and it is, you know, that, you know, 3, 3 p.m. in the afternoon. And so um, just during those kind of difficult times, it is hard to retain talent. And so um, uh, certainly something I'm willing to look into in the future. And if, uh, you know, a little bit more of a money motivation would help, I'm certainly willing to try that. Thank you for your open-mindedness. It's good to hear that it's, you know, once again, it's not just the fact that there aren't a lot of people to take these jobs anyway, but that it is really odd hours. So, okay, this is all, all good information for me. And it, it sounds like at this point, I, I don't know, at least I'm thinking our, our best course of action is probably to just kind of kind of see where it goes as the program you know, continues to evolve. But I want to hear from other commissioners too to make sure I'm not, not missing something because I've been talking this whole time. 
This is Commissioner Clatt. I, I just had a question in terms of um, in kind of in light of our earlier conversation about public um, participation and feedback to the public. The, of those 20 intersections that were submitted for request for, for uh, crossing guards, um, so three of them were approved and 17 weren't for you know various reasons. Did the people who submitted those get feedback or get a response in terms of why the decision was one way or another? Or, um, I mean, I don't know how it comes in if you even know who the people are who submitted. I don't know what that form looked like, but uh, I'm just curious whether if if you, they were identified, if they if they received a response about what uh, what the outcome was. Uh, this is Dustin Smith with MSO. Um, I, you've uh, highlighted a, a short shortfall there, and that was our intent. And I'm realizing in real time that I I did not um, close the loop on that, but we do have contact information, and and uh, the comment that that came in with each request. So I will uh, make sure I follow up and 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 do get back to each of them with with the reason why or why not their their request was filled. Great, thanks. Go ahead, David. Oh yeah, David Baltuska, MMTC. I, I was just curious, this is my first time looking, so I don't know. I know on the chart it's, I'm gathering that your warrant is 30, 30 kids crossing, is that correct? I'm, I'm curious if there was like any metric that takes into account like the amount of traffic that they're facing or the length of the crosswalk or like, you know, relative danger of the condition. Does that factor in as well? Yep. So uh, I apologize. The chart is a little simplified to, to kind of make it presentable in, in uh, uh, the limited space. And so the warrants uh, do account. Is, uh, there are different uh, warrant criteria depending on the type of crossing that it is, a, an uncontrolled versus a, a controlled intersection. And, and um, but both tend to take in, or they both do take into account basically the conflicts between the number of students and the number of vehicles, uh, the uncontrolled, uh, instead of counting vehicles, they count um, safe gaps in traffic. Okay. That a student would recognize that it's safe to cross now. And so the, the, the vehicle volume is accounted for in, in all cases for the uh, warrants. Cool, thank you. This is Commissioner O'Brien. Uh, I just want to say I really appreciate the work that has been put into this uh, policy and the the regular process of reviewing the crossing guard locations. Uh, years ago, I was a little more involved in this, and I I remember how difficult this was. Um, kind of getting to next point that people take this very seriously because it's their children and. You know, they, they feel justified in advocating for their children crossing a street, even if there aren't enough children crossing the street. So it's difficult. Um, I would just reiterate, I think what Commissioner Colet was getting to, like we really, we've made a process that creates mechanism for the community to to request something. And we have to be really mindful of you know, those, when those requests are denied. I, 
I think the ones that specifically say that uh, it wasn't on a safe routes to school um, might be frustrating for for community members that don't understand how a safe route gets designated. Mm -hmm. So information about how they might um, get involved in that planning process could be useful. Um, I think we got to be just careful that the notification to them isn't just, sorry, you were denied, but it needs to be a little more proactive around like what would it take or what is our alternative path that we believe you should take. You know, if your child isn't crossing at a safe route, they ought to be crossing over here at the designated safe route. That could be helpful for the parent that um, maybe just didn't know about that. Um, so I, I'd, I'd really appreciate that there's a way for the public to kind of request these things every year. And I'm real impressed the crossing that I see all the time is Inverness and Clinton Parkway. And I remember years ago, you know, the discussion about how that's a real intimidating intersection. And yet you hear, well, it's a controlled intersection. There's a stoplight there. It's like that doesn't help parents to feel that their kid can get across. So just knowing that there's a way for a child to be supervised and making that crossing uh, it, and seeing that the data supports it, that's exciting. And knowing that the policy allows for consideration of the potential and then there's a way to, you know, pilot that to kind of validate that, yeah, in fact, there was potential demand. And once we put it out there, you know, the demand came to fruition. That's great to see that. Um, I do imagine this list is going to just keep getting better every year as parents give fit feedback and you guys do this regular evaluation. So, and I think it's kind of to Nick's question about, you know, we're we trying to cut the budget. I think that's a, you have to be careful about how that get, comes across because it wasn't, I don't think anyone's intention to cut the budget. I know it was really the intention to make sure the resources are deployed in the best way and that there's an ongoing way to evaluate that and make adjustments. So it feels like we're on the right path, but maybe the communications about it needs to be really considered carefully. Thank you. This is Commissioner Collette. I think especially in light of school boundary changes or, or potential ones that have happened and that are coming up, having that regular review process so that that, you know, those crossing guards are in the right place and people can not feel frustrated that you know, they're they're trying to get to school, but, uh, um, you know, don't have a safe way or don't feel that it's safe to, to walk. So I really appreciate that regular update and review. Thank you, Mayor Kim and TC Chair. Any other commissioner comments or questions? Commissioner Bryan, I do appreciate seeing the transportation disadvantage score on the summary table that you put together. I don't know how that factors into the warrants, but it feels uh, important to present that information. Yeah, thank you guys for staying out so late. I realize this is <laughs> this is really at the end of the meeting, but definitely appreciate you willing to engage in a conversation and kind of the past, present, and future here. So 
it's definitely helped me understand it a lot better. So with that, um, let's move on to commission items. Commissioner Kuzmak, I got two other really brief staff updates. Sure, no problem. Um, on tomorrow night's city commission agenda, um, first is the revised scope of work for the green pavement marking project. So we had a discussion in January about that. Um, I was working with Alta, um, a design group on the scope and fee. We got to the end of that ne negotiation or uh, whatever the scope and fee, and then the engineer left. Long story short, we're now working with Trek, and so that um, we're moving forward with that. So that's on the the uh, on the agenda tomorrow night. And the other thing is the um, the um, resolution for the steering committee of the land development codes on the regular agenda uh, tomorrow night. So I know Commissioner Kuzmiak attended the city commission meeting after our last meeting and um, advocated for representation on that. And so that will be considered tomorrow on the regular agenda. So just wanted to mention those two updates. That's all I have. That's a particularly good segue then, because that was literally the first commission item that I was going to bring up. So <laughs> I guess while we're on it, we can stick on the topic, but also move to the next um, next item on our agenda, which is F commission items. So yeah, let's start with that one first, because I feel like we've been talking about land use a lot already. Um, so just a quick recap for those who either I haven't spoken to or didn't see the meeting of two weeks ago. When we were talking about having transportation representation on the steering committee for the land use code, um, uh, rewrite. I think we had seen in the agenda item for the meeting that there was a presentation that was going to be given to city commission and there was a couple, um, they kind of recommended a, a draft makeup of the steering steering committee, but also said, hey, there are some other boards that might be interested like Livewell Lawrence, MMTC, Affordable Housing Advisory Board, and Sustainability Advisory Board. What actually was going to happen is that that being on the consent agenda, it was just going to go right through without any staff presentation whatsoever or any consideration of who was going to be on the steering um, steering committee, which is kind of wild. Um, and I think the city commission was kind of blindsided by that as well. So I'm really glad you guys authorized me to bring it up because it wouldn't have happened otherwise. Um, so anyway, um, I guess it's good that we did that. And I guess um, it, it's coming up again tomorrow as an actual agenda item. And um, I guess if you think it would be of use for me to make a comment again on behalf of MMTC, I'm willing to do so to try to kind of advocate for us. So just throwing that out there if anything, if anybody thinks that would be a good idea. Mr. Commissioner Bryan, I would certainly appreciate if you could be there again and reiterate our position. Commissioner Collette, I, I agree. That would be terrific to to re, you know, restate that position. Okay. I don't think I would, I would write something. I, I would probably just show up um, just on the call. It seems like that has more of an impact anyway. So um, if I could get a quick show of thumbs, Dave, I think that's what we did last time, right? Just like hands up. Oh, on, on you speaking. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, we can do that. We get, yeah. Okay. Thumbs up. Thumbs up. My Everybody thumbs up too. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. I don't, I don't count. All right. Well, I will um, plan on showing up to the commission tomorrow. All right. 
Sounds good. Um, before I launch into any of my other ones, do any other commissioners have any commission items? Mr. Commissioner Bryan, I just have something really short. Uh, it's notable that uh, Commissioner Redding has missed um, most of our meetings and he's brand new. And I just wanted to inquire as to how we might be communicating with him about what the bylaws stipulate as expectations and if, if anything's happened. I mean, I'm not sure, you know, since he's new, like, I just feel like we need to be, not neglect him. Sure. So I don't know, is there anything been done or is that, has he been communicating with you, Nick, about not being able to come to meetings? Uh, but I should probably reach out to him at some point. That's a good idea to kind of keep him in the loop. The bylaws state that the, we're supposed to notify you within 24 hours in order for an, ex, an absence to be considered um, excused. Hmm. I guess 24 so, hours on either end. Yeah. I mean, it's we're short on people and I'd hate to lose someone if he's interested and we need to get some feedback. Like maybe there's a problem with the schedule. I don't know how, how yeah. much willing, how willing we are to change the schedule, but I'd like him to know at least that we noticed that he's gone and we appreciate his attendance. Does the bylaws, do you have a, for unexcused absence, absences, is it a uh, requirement? Four is the cap and then six, of, Think six absences altogether during a calendar year. Yeah. So I mean, you can be pretty, pretty vacant all year and still got, <laughs> still have your position. But I hope none of us are trying to aspire to that. Right. Um, and he, I'm just more concerned that he's new and he may, we just might be missing something. Yeah, I'll follow up with him. He he contacted me before the last meeting, but I didn't hear from him for okay. this meeting. So we'll follow up with him. Okay. Dave, if you wouldn't mind, can you CC him in me on that as well, please? Sure. Thanks. I'll stay in the loop if I can. Okay. Any other commission items? Okay. Well, if not, I have a, I have a couple. Don't worry. I will, I won't be like Carol. I just, I'll try to be as fast as I can. Although I always appreciated Carol's thoughts. So, um, all right. So I wanted to bring up a, I think this is just a general public comment from last time regarding the crossing in 29th and Haskell. So I'm wondering if, uh, if Dave, if you could just kind of give a brief summary to everybody on just kind of what happened. Um, I personally was not fully clued into what the situation was. So just like a brief few sentences to bring us up to speed would be very helpful. Well, um, as far as uh, doing a raised crosswalk, uh, two years ago, it was early 2020, I believe, we brought uh, option to the MMTC about um, a diverter on the north end, so you wouldn't be able to go straight through southbound onto Haskell Lane. Um, and uh, had we received public comment, and the recommendation we received was to install a raised crosswalk. So we did that um, at that intersection. It is um, just due to the grade of the road and the site conditions, and it is not exactly built to the standard, our city standard. It was tweaked a little bit, um, but other than that, that's that's the history. Just, um, I don't wanna make too big a deal out of this 
right now. I think if it becomes a bigger deal, we should possibly make it an agenda item. But for now, I just want to get an understanding of the diverter. Did that get shut down because of, I guess, opinions and preferences on the commission or due to public comment from the guy who owns that land directly south of there? I don't recall why we would have said no to a diverter. Um, Dave Cronin, it's been a while, um, but it was it was it was the feedback, and uh, I, I think it was a combination of the feedback and the situation. Um, I think the feedback played a played a part into the recommendation um, from the property owner over there, um, and and at some point, I and mean, we've had this came up as well when that redevelops over there, they'll need to do it traffic study and we'll look to make uh, require improvements to be made um, at that time. Um, um, you know, we weren't really thrilled when that opened up five years ago after the SLT and it was designed like that and built like that, but uh, it is it is there. People do use it uh, as a shortcut to avoid the signal at 31st and Haskell and um, in the future, uh, maybe we can make some changes, but Okay. Um, oh, it, it was um, March of 2020. Okay. Yeah, I thought I heard you say that earlier. All right. So in that case, I'm going to try to look into that and see what happened because I don't remember either. That was a long time ago. I mean, a long time ago. So um, um, we don't usually do public comment on commission items. So, Michael, I may just have to t talk to you offline and just see if we can um, take this up, but I, I will be looking into this just to kind of refresh myself. Um, reason I'm asking, it sounds like a diverter would be too particularly expensive if it wasn't concrete, if it was just those, those uh, flappy things. Could be a cheap fix, so I don't know if that's what was recommended or not, but I want to kind of learn more about it, so I'm not going to take up any more time tonight, but it's something I like to see, so. Okay, um, the other thing was I wanted to ask what is going on with the brick committee? Um, I. I, for some reason, I thought that was two folks from East Lawrence Neighborhood Association, and maybe they had a staff contact, but it sounds like nobody's ever met. So, Dave, I don't know if you're privy to what's going on there. Yeah, um, it's it's on hold. We we had uh, the staff lead of the stakeholder committee uh, is not with the city in, anymore. We reassigned it to someone else who's on paternity leave. Um, and it's just, it's a matter of our workload and what we got going on that it's kind of been put on pause. Okay. Um, I guess once that person gets back, that's probably when it might be on pause, right? Hopefully. Hopefully. I guess the issue is that we're now in the point where we're doing sidewalk reconstruction and repair in the places where there are brick sidewalks. So it's going to look a little funky to have these really nice smooth concrete sidewalks leading up to brick chaos. So it, it, it'll have to get done relatively soon. Just given the way that we've reprioritized how we go about sidewalks, I think when we were going sector by sector, it made sense to kind of hold. But now that we're going by kind of trip, like well-traveled sidewalks being first, they're probably gonna have to come up soon. So, okay, I guess we'll stay tuned for that one. I think that's all I have at this point. So does anybody else have additional comments? Shall we go to the calendar? Just Commissioner Bryan, I don't want to get deep into this, um, but bringing up the 29th or the uh, Haskell Lane race crossing, do we 
could we get something, you know, maybe some materials that we could review about who initiated that request for the, um, I, I, don't, I don't, I guess it's been a while and a lot of us weren't even there during that decision. Um, so I'm wondering if we could just kind of get some materials to help give everyone kind of a shared understanding of what the request was and how it turned out. I mean, or is it just go back and watch the video? Like, how would you recommend us all getting on the same page with this? Yeah. And refreshing ourselves. Okay. And could we get Mr. Zaremba to maybe come back and I guess I'm looking for like, if it isn't working, then can we better understand what we can do next? Because we, I think we made a good faith effort to find a solution that was good for everyone. And I'm hearing that it didn't really work out. And um, that it didn't even meet city standards, that's new to me. So I, I feel like, wow, um, if it's not happening, not working, then let's, let's not just wait for a private citizen to bring it up. Can we, can we do something? Can we ask staff to maybe put that on an agenda item for some other discussion next month or a month after or a study session or something? I mean, is there something more than just hearing about it through public comment? Um, as far as, well, as far as not working, I don't know. I can't say it's not working. We'd put in a raised crosswalk. Um, the other option that we talked about, what, maybe, what, maybe not work is too strong. I'm just saying like, you know, we have some data we collected beforehand. We look at data again. Is there any change that would demonstrate how effective it was or is not? Yeah. So, and I, I would, I would. Uh, be surprised if it decreased the volume of traffic. We didn't get any speed data. We got volume data. And if I remember I was right, it was about 80% of people use that as a shortcut. And so we identified that as a problem before the project. When we were doing the project for the Lawrence Loop and that connection, we brought that option um, to the table to be considered with the project. So instead of building the race crosswalk, it was to put in a diverter, some delineators. Um, and I think we had a discussion on whether or not to do it on the south end or the north end um, to help reduce the volume. But the race crosswalk probably didn't reduce the volume of traffic. It would it, reduce the speed. So staff initiated that. I don't think it, think it re reduced the speed. <laughs> the well, it sounds right. like we don't have data on well, the speed. Well, well, northbound traffic stops at the intersection of the race crosswalk. Southbound does not stop. Yeah, you're supposed to stop. <laughs> you're, you're, no. supposed to, you're supposed to yield to pedestrians in the it's crosswalk. Just, it's got great sight distance. Um, I, we haven't heard any complaints. Um, um, from any users of it, um, I've, you know, driven through. But if there's, I guess, what do you want us to bring back? So I think process? this gets to the idea that there's a different, there's a difference between public comments and even like city, our, our commission item discussions and seeing something on our agenda that uh, adds some more formality to it. So. If it's a staff item at a future meeting, that would be sufficient, in my opinion. Just kind of giving an official, here's the history, here's how the decision was decided, you know, was made, and we did it. 
following your recommendation because you did. And here's the current status. I mean, and if you have another recommendation, that would be great to put in there as well. But like, just do something so that we can feel like we're not just being um, deaf to the, you know, public feedback we're getting. We'll, we'll put that as a staff item next month. Thank you. Yeah, and I, I plan to read or to uh, listen to the old meeting just to kind of see where it all came from, what the cost of the other solution was, and just kind of get a better idea of what's what could have happened. So, yeah, we'll see what we can do. Any other commission items? Oh, there is something about the Transportation 2050 Steering Committee, but that hasn't started meeting yet, has it? Damon and Pat? No. No. Okay. Oh. Hold up. Just yes, we met one time. We had a kickoff meeting, remember? Oh, yeah, yeah the kickoff okay. meeting. <laughs> Sorry. You may, it's okay. I think. You were kicked I'm off. like, yes, yeah. we have. We yeah, had we a kickoff kick meeting. <laughs> yeah, we did. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> so, how was it? <laughs> Is there an update? <laughs> it's the best kickoff meeting ever. Ever. All right. I guess, shall we wait till the next meeting to have an update on? Transportation 2050? Well, the one thing I can say about it is we have begun our public engagement process for T2050 <laughs> and with tabling last week and a survey out already. And so I'd encourage you to go check out the survey on MPO Tell Us, encourage people you know to take it, check out our the website if you want to come talk to staff at any of the many of events that we are scheduling um, as part of the first round of public engagement for T2050 to understand uh, the diverse transportation perspectives. Um, the survey really uh, hopes to understand people's experience with transportation and some of the things that impact um, their experiences. And is that on Lawrence Listens? Oh, no, it's, it's on, not. It's on the MPO Tell Us portal. Okay. Because it's countywide, it's not just City of Lawrence. We're yeah. working in Baldwin City and LeCompton and Eudora as well in the unincorporated parts of the county. Okay, good to know. Okay. Spread the word. Okay, well, I think that probably brings us to the end of public, or sorry, of commission items, unless anybody has any last minute ones. Um, and with that, let's go to the calendar. Maybe it looks like you got a, a potentially busy agenda for next month, is that right? Yes, we have the um, neighborhood traffic management program, and um, I think we were going to try to bring the five-year bike grid prioritization plan. Um, so for the bike ped CFP funding plan, is that more of, I guess it's less talking about the prioritization and how we rank projects and more about the projects themselves. Is that how that's going to be different from this month? Correct. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's taken the, the policy, the scoring, and, um, you know, we did a five-year plan last year and we've made changes and we're going to relook at, relook at all of the projects and the funds we have and make a recommendation and get feedback. Sounds good. And um, I guess we need a study session. So, um, any, I mean, I can look into this later and just when we have our agenda planning meeting with Dave, but do any other commissioners have anything that they think could be kind of a quick fire study session? 
Um, Charlie, you had brought up something about possibly um, bringing in an expert to talk about transportation planning from KU. Um, and also the idea of like an inventory of Lawrence Loop and other shared use path crossings to kind of see if there's, I don't know, any trends we can look at. Do you want to explain those further? Or I don't even know if I, if I mentioned that correctly. This Commissioner Brian, yeah, you you mentioned them correctly. Um, well, when we were looking at where there's some open, like some quick uh, topics we could throw together if we were running short on topics, I just threw those out as some suggestions. The finding a faculty member at KU that could help us, you know, with just deepening our understanding of the intersection of land use planning and transportation planning seemed like a worthwhile thing to, to do, if, especially if we're making the argument that transportation is a intersects, you know, strongly with land use planning. So I thought if there's a professor who could talk to us about that, um, that would be just a good, good education for us. Uh, I was thinking a little bit about the presentation, Nick, that your dad gave us, you know, just sometimes it's good to have a, a professional or an academic kind of give us a overview of something just to make sure we're all understanding those concepts. And then the uh, Lawrence Loop intersection or crossings, I just was thinking about when it comes up about how the safety of crossings as the Lawrence Loop is a high priority project, it would be beneficial for us to really understand the most dangerous aspect of the Lawrence Loop is going to be how people cross uh, streets. So would it be possible to look at just classifying those, you know, ones that are on certain kinds of arterials or collectors or you know, volume of crossings. I mean, just I was thinking of different ways you might characterize crossings and then put them in some kind of rubric to help us kind of make sense of it. Like these are the most highly utilized crossings. These are the ones that are, you know, most dangerous for lack of a better word. Like if I was to want to go study the crossings, where would I where would I start? Are there 43 of them? Are there 22 of them? You know, like give us a better understanding of that. Well, just kind of an idea. Um, it just helps us to get oriented to like the projects that could be in front of us. Like if we really believe crossings are a key way for us to improve the community, then take crossings and the Lawrence Loop, give us something to focus on. Um, it's just another idea. Like uh, safe routes is another one. Safe routes and crossings. You know, seeing the pedestrian plan tonight. Now I'm going, well, I want to go look at those intersections, you know? So put some, so sort of frame things where we can start to digest it. Uh, if it's 150 projects, that's hard to take a bite out of, you know? But if it's like, okay, here's the Lawrence Loop, you probably should go get familiar with it. And by the way, here are the crossings that are identified by the community as most concerning. You know, that would be interesting, taking the 
MPO's approach to the pedestrian plan and use the same approach for crossings on the loop. Now, if you think there's a problem with the crossing, let us know. That'd be interesting way to do community engagement and maybe give us something to focus on. I know it's sometimes a little different than following a policy that says I prioritize these things by this, you know, these criteria, but it's it's more coherent. I think when you're talking to the public, like, yeah, we're trying to improve these five crossings. So I just thought that might be a good study topic. It might generate some public interest. Is that what you're looking for, Nick? Yeah. And Dave, I wanted to hear your thoughts on that. I remember you saying that it would be helpful if we could align these with the 2022 work work plan to kind of show, you know, directly that this is something that we wanted to work on. Um, do you feel like after Charlie explained it much better than I probably explained it to you um, that we're roughly in alignment there? I think the crossing um, policy, it is in alignment and we're going to work on an, our inventory of crossings um, hopefully this summer with our intern, our summer intern. Um, and because that's going to be the next step after we have a policy is implementation of improvements. Um, well, it, I mean, it's just been at the forefront of all the conversations we've had crossings, what we do, where, and um, so, yeah, I think that's a, um, can't, we can't have it put together by next month, but that certainly can be added to the list. And um, if there's a specific professor that you guys are thinking about or someone mm. that would help uh, on the land use, how to tie that in, or I could have talk to Jeff Crick about that. Maybe it's a combination or something. We can do that. Just let me know. Um, just, just because it's not clearly on the work plan doesn't mean we can't do it. We just want to try to at least prioritize the things that are on there already. So um, we'll get together and see if we can come up with something for next month. I was thinking it was tied to the work plan element around planning processes. That works. The um, professor Well, um, Joel Mendez, he's a transportation professor in the KU School of Public Affairs and Administration in the Urban Planning Department. So just, you know, there's a lot of resources in this community. So that was, I just thought if you got someone like that in town, maybe they'd come and give us a nice lecture. Maybe not. I don't know. I mean, it, I would say if Jeff has a connection and he wants to explore it, that would be great. The what got me thinking about the crossings was actually the um, Haskell Lane race crosswalk. It's like that's only one crossing along this entire loop, and it'd be nice to think about it in a more holistic way instead of just the one crossing. If we're going to push for more. You know some change there. I guess I'd like to know is is that the best improvement given the whole network of that trail? I mean, it's twenty some miles of you know the plan is twenty some miles, and it's going to make a lot of crossings. And 
I'd like to make sure we prioritize the right crossing improvement on that trail. Maybe it is Haskell Lane, but maybe not. Maybe there's something else that we need to be mindful of. Yeah, we have all kinds of different crossings. We've got RFBs at some, hawk signals, yeah. race crosswalk. Yeah, we've got a multitude and very separated too. So it's the best. Tunnels. Tunnels. <laughs> yeah. Or just cutting off roads, you know, I don't know. <laughs> off the road. All right, guys. Well, I see Michael Allman's hand raised. So in the spirit of uh, collaboration here, Michael, I'll give you a few minutes, but uh, we're about to wrap up. So if you have any other calendar items, just let it rip. <laughs> Hi, thanks again, Michael Allman here. Uh, thanks, Commissioner Bryan, for bringing up the uh, Lawrence Loop intersection issue. Um, you know, the city controls pretty much all of those with whatever devices. And as much as I'm concerned about 29th and Haskell, I think somebody needs to follow up with KDOT on the SLT West Leg, the intersection at um, Clinton Parkway. That I think would be the worst one right now. I think it was a few months back they presented to you and that was gonna be a grade crossing for cars going 55 miles an hour. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that's one that the city only marginally peripherally has any say in. So I think, you know, it'd be good to look into that one too. Thanks a lot for all your discussion. Thank you, Michael. Um, I don't think we necessarily need a motion. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll do a motion to adjourn and then we'll um, just raise our hands. So I'll entertain it. This is Commissioner Collette, I uh, move to adjourn the meeting. All in favor, hands up. Who seconded it, anybody? <laughs> Commissioner Bautoska, uh, sec right. second the motion. All right, all in favor, raise your hand and press the leave button. Thank you, everybody. Great discussion, and we'll follow up soon. Thank you.